Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Welcome to the Excellence in Retail Financial Services Convention 2022, incorporating the International Hate of Retail Annual Meeting and Dialogue, as well as the Excellence Awards 2022 Ceremony. I'm very happy to see all of you from across Asia, the Middle East and Africa joining us via Zoom, as well as through live streaming on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thank you for attending this important yearly gathering of leaders in the digital consumer and retail finance industry as we chart the course towards supercharging retail and embark on the next phase of digital finance transformation. We hope you are keeping well despite the challenges of the past few years. We are now into the third year of living with COVID-19 and I think we are at the tail end of that journey and we hope you are continuing to keep safe as we turn the corner on the pandemic. The situation worldwide appears to have improved considerably, especially in the West. I was in London just last week and in the UK, things are back to normal. There is no more need to wear a mask around. So you'll feel a bit out of place if you still have your mask on. In Europe, the US and some parts of the Middle East, like the United Arab Emirates, most restrictions have been lifted and borders are open. Ex vaccination rates have increased. And recently in Singapore as well, here in Singapore, restriction has also been lifted and uh, there are a lot more social gathering happening. Life is back to almost normal and this will probably be the last entirely virtual excellence annual convention we will hold and we look forward to meeting in person and having more physical event close to where you are in Asia, Middle East and Africa. Now we're saying that some countries have been more cautious and conservative than others in dealing with the pandemic. Restriction and borders are taking more time to come down despite increasing vaccination rates. Nevertheless, the momentum is building for more economies and the lives of and livelihood of their people to quickly get back to normal. And it is getting back to a new normal that has become increasingly digital as the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of digital transactions and of digital services and, and processes. Meanwhile, banks and financial institutions have been accelerating their digital transformation. The rise of digital challenges facilitated by regulatory changes across the world, especially evident in Asia, uh, and shifting consumer behaviors have pushed traditional players to respond as well, not in just modernizing your technology, architecture, and infrastructure, but fundamentally in how you do business, especially how you partner and collaborate with each other through digital and cloud-enabled platforms and APIs to support open banking and embedded finance. And to track the increasing array of standalone virtual Neo or challenger banks that have come onto the scene, the, challenge, the Asian banker through our research arm, which we have just recently rebranded to Tap Insights, has launched the world's first comprehensive assessment of global digital-only banks to rank them according to a balanced scorecard derived from an objective and transparent set of evaluation criteria. Now, there is no shortage of coverage of digital banks today, but there is a lack of a clear and specific definition of what a digital bank actually is. 
So we attempt to define what a digital bank is and set a set of objective and transparent criteria to assess and rank them. This inaugural annual ranking aims to address this gap by assessing them on a more consolidated and consistent global basis. The global top 100 digital only banks ranking covers digital bank from 37 countries across major regions in the world. It scores the digital bank's ability to grow their customer base through superior experience, their robust market and product coverage, as well as their sound financial performance, strong balance sheet, and their success in fundraising. Scale does matter, but so does profitability, operation efficiency, resilience, as well as the ability to build a sound capital buffer and how they grow a healthy loan book. Key insights from the rankings will be shared during the heads of retail annual dialogue, where we'll also uh, do a briefing of the key findings from the annual excellence in retail financial services program. Meanwhile, here's a glimpse of some interesting facts and data. Out of the global top 100 digital only banks, only 29 are profit-making enterprises. Digital banks will focus on personal finance, wealth management, and SME lending are among some of the most profitable ones. Asia Pacific as a region takes the lion's share of digital banks, hosting about 55% of them. 52% of these profitable banks are represented by first-generation players who can trace their origin back to the internet or dot-com boom period of the late 1990s and early 2000. Of course, in the interim, they have transformed quite dramatically from what they were originally. So even as we dissect the profile and performance of these digital banks, we continue to track and benchmark retail finance institutions under the Excellence Program. This year, we received, as per previous year, over 200 submissions from more than 40 banks and non-bank retail financial institutions, uh, retail financial services players in Asia, Middle East, and Africa, vying for some over 44 awards in 57 categories across retail financial services and digital banking. This evening, we'll be recognizing 19 institutions in 22 categories. We have many leading institutions from China and Hong Kong who, uh, who will be recognized uh, in a separate uh, event, probably in August, as details are being confirmed, given uncertainty in the country. The Retail Product and Process Awards will also be announced, and uh, the award ceremony held sometime in July, so details of those would also be forthcoming soon. Since 2020, we have invested in our digital consumer feedback channel, bankquality.com, to survey customers on their engagement ex and experience with their main retail banks and how banks have helped their customers during the pandemic. We believe that consumers will ultimately determine the winners and losers in this digital era. And bank quality provides a rigorous, standardized and transparent platform to measure and benchmark this voice of customers. We incorporate net promoter score based ratings that we call the bank quality score into the winner evaluation and selection for the excellence awards to reflect this voice of customers. 
I congratulate in advance all the institutions who will be recognized later in the evening. Each year, it is harder for our research team, our TAP Insights team, and our council advisors to decide and agree on the winners as competition heats up with new fintech and digital players and incumbents uh, who have also very aggressively pursued their own digital reinvention. Despite the disruption caused by the pandemic, the retail financial services industry continues to be resilient, contributing a relatively bigger share of banks' revenue and profits in the past couple of years, despite low interest rate and margins. Thanks to your ability to understand your customer needs, deliver value and generate fees, especially in wealth management and personal finance. With the growing focus on digital services, the industry has already started the process to rethink the pace and effect of digital innovation, how you create digital platforms, ecosystem, and value chain, how uh, the bank do not have to uh, manufacture, manufacture all your products. Uh, some banks are very good at distribution, how you can work within a, big, a bigger ecosystem, either through uh, banking as a service or banking as a platform to work together to provide value to your customer. Econ economies worldwide are also pursuing a wider and more diverse range of policy towards digitalizing their economies, sustainable development, as well as integration and cooperation with each other to help each other become fully fledged digital economies. The financial system will continue its digital transformation as consumers increasingly prefer online transactions. And this will likely continue even after COVID. And the Asian banker through TAP Insights will continue to track, evaluate and calibrate financial institutions that are on this journey to transform themselves into more competitive and sustainable digital players. This year's Excellence Virtual Convention will have a number of insightful leadership dialogues and panel discussion on the accelerated use of data analytics and artificial intelligence, machine learning in finance, innovation in next generation payments in the uh, retail industry, as well as challenges that retail and digital finance leaders face in achieving sustainable growth post pandemic and how to compete amid this current waves of uncertainty that's sweeping across the world. This session will be moderated by our esteemed colleagues, uh, Mubasha Zain Kasmi, who's our head of TAP Insights, and Richard Hathong, uh, one of our international resource directors and a member of the Excellence Council of Advisor. They will engage experts in the field in the region and beyond such as David Hadun, Chief Data and AI Officer at Union Bank of the Philippines, Chipo Mashwana in Emerging Innovation and Payments of NetBanks in South Africa, Sam Arrington, the CEO of Engine by Star, Starling Bank in the United Kingdom. Dick Ho, Deputy General Manager uh, for Customer Management at Bank of China in Hong Kong, and Salim Danani, CEO and co-founder of BigPay, the fintech arm of uh, Malaysia-based Air Asia, a regional budget carrier. 
We want this to be interactive and immersive discussion with you, our audience. So please avail of the chat functions on your Zoom, Facebook or LinkedIn platform to raise any questions or to share your perspective or start a uh, discussion. So in conclusion, today's Excellence Convention is the culmination of months and years of intense research to discover best practices and benchmark that can set high standard and shape the future of retail finance. The Excellence Program is the most established program of its kind in the industry. It started in 2000 and 2001. Over the last two decades, we have built a strong repository of research data, benchmark, case studies, uh, profile of banks that we like. Up to recently, uh, a lot of the data uh, have been in the uh, Asian Banker generic website. And to help our users and our readers and our community of banks, uh, this year we've decided to make our research more accessible and to create a standalone website called Tap Insights that will house this rich repository of data through working groups like the Retail and Digital Finance Working Group, where uh, it's a membership program where members can access uh, country profiles, bank profiles, the rich repository of data that I mentioned on case studies, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, there'll be more information of this uh, uh, later as we go through uh, the briefing and, and how you can use those. And uh, we have been working with banks to do performance um, uh, review, benchmarking, and so on and so forth. And also even in the area of financial technology implementation, how uh, those data can be used in the process of selecting uh, uh, most suitable uh, solution as well as solution provider in something called vendor selection. So for the excellence, research process it is one that is thorough objective and impartial it also marks our commitment to the retail finance community which is so important and the program will inspire future progress and innovation as we supercharge retail and start the next the next phase of the digital finance transformation journey so i wish you all a fruitful and inspired excellence in retail financial services Convention 2022. And with this, I would now like to pass the time over to our Head of Research, Mubacha, who will be chairing the session on Agile Data and Responsible AI, Developing Analytics and Personalizing Services. Wonderful. <clears throat> Thank you, Bunping. Uh, good afternoon, attendees, and welcome uh, to our session on Agile Data and Responsible AI. Um, so I'll be your host for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Joining us are two distinguished uh, senior executives from leading FIs uh, in the Philippines and Hong Kong. Um, so they'll be sharing with us their perspectives on how data and analytics in AI is really shaping the ongoing uh, digital transformation of the banking industry um, and really looking at how FIs are utilizing AI and, and data uh, across a range of verticals and functions from uh, you know, improved fraud detection and credit scoring to hyper-personalized product sets. 
Um, so we'll be essentially looking at using data with partners in an open ecosystem, uh, examining the accelerating use of AI in financial services uh, with technologies such as 5G, uh, understanding the significance of data and AI in terms of preventing and detecting fraud, uh, and also looking at the advancement in, of, of conversational AI and uh, wrapping that up uh, in terms of the integration of third-party data uh, that delivers personalized insights and customer engagement. Um, so with that said, I'd, I'd like to introduce our guests. Uh, as as Bunping mentioned earlier, we have uh, with us David Hardoon, who's the Chief Data and AI Officer at the Union Bank of the Philippines. Uh, joining us with him will be uh, Dick Ho, who's the Deputy General Manager, Customer Management uh, at the Bank of China, Hong Kong. So I'd like to thank both of them for joining us today. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a very exciting interactive session um, as we want to keep this, uh, you know, engaging as possible, uh, a note for the audience, uh, again, to please uh, use the, either the Zoom uh, or Facebook uh, chat function to, to drop in your comments and, and questions that you may have for uh, this subject matter experts. So let's get started then. Um, as we, we were quite uh, aware, the financial services uh, uh, industry continues to uh, cater to a very highly digitized consumer. Uh, and they have to leverage technology solutions that are, of course, designed specifically to assist them. Uh, and given that we're in this digital age of instant access, uh, banks are obviously investing a lot in terms of the transformation of their own internal processes and, and business models uh, to really improve the way they're operating and the way they're uh, able to meet the growing expectations of their very digitally savvy customers. So automating those processes, digitizing data, of course, the core to transforming the way uh, that business is now being done. But what are those best practices uh, really for achieving this? So I'd like to perhaps start off with, uh, with uh, David um, really uh, looking at the role of uh, this intelligent automation and this uh, you know, uh, so-called responsible artificial intelligence that operates within an open ecosystem. Uh, and from your perspective, what role are you seeing data play given the myriad uh, of stakeholders that are involved uh, and that comprise this really fast-changing uh, financial ecosystem? So, David, over to you. Well, um, first and foremost, thank, thank you very much for having me here. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, that's a big question. Uh, that's a big question because you have two components there. One is obviously the well, open banking or open ecosystem, perhaps more accurately as you positioned it, and essentially the criticality and the importance of data. Now, once you intersect those two, and you have to intersect those two, is achieving an environment where is a degree, degree, I guess, to a certain extent, as one would envisage it, of openness of facilitation, whether it is the open banking and it's kind of within the financial sector or as I personally like to see it. And I think many are now kind of viewing in terms of the iteration of it, really kind of open data and data portability is that it's situated on the fundamentals of data. Now, it also means there is a need to start creating a bit rules of, of <laughs> rules of engagement and appreciations of boundaries. I'll give you an example. Previously, as a financial institution, you know, all the data is me. But now, now essentially saying, well, hold on a second. Some of the data that I'm a custodian of is indeed that of the customer. And if there's a situation whereby another service provider of this customer requests via consent of the customer to get access to that data as part of my role as a custodian, 
I am there to provide it. It's a shift. It's a change. And I, I don't want to under, underestimate that shift. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there's been, a, what would you say, a rainbow of emotions across the industry in responding to that. But uh, being A, an optimist, uh, B, a data advocate, I believe that the result, resultant, excuse me, of this is absolutely tra transformative. It's transformative because we're starting to really see the underlying possibilities that the world of data provides organizations individually, but also in an ecosystem saying, well, how do we incorporate? How do we provide one another? How do we bring our individual capabilities and our strength to go beyond? Now, of course, you obviously have the providers that would look at it in terms of, you know, the super platforms, um, uh, super apps, etc., and so forth, which is absolutely fine. But not everyone can have that, that extent of services. And then you're seeing this much larger uh, interactivity and collaboration, which as a consumer, whether a retail or wholesale, it's fundamentally beneficial. So that's an exceedingly, exceedingly important point. Then just to very briefly, obviously, given the region that we're in, and uh, allow me to not use the term financial inclusion, uh, more financial resilience. Why do I say financial resilience? Is because at the end of the day, the, the underlying demographics that may have not uh, been in the formal financial system or may not be fully served, have a form of a financial uh, economy. In the end of the day, they work, they, they earn, they, they save, but to what scale and to what dexterity do they get the resiliency that someone has access, for example, to a full suite of financial services in terms of lending, earning, uh, earning, and so forth. So that's really about it. Now, once you incorporate this open ecosystem, the openness of data, with that agenda of financial resilience, you suddenly start to look at things differently. You suddenly realize that there's an ability to still have financial services, regulatory environment, um, all the policy cons and constraints, but, but, but the requirements and so forth, but then contextualizing it to different cohorts. One is a very traditional sense, and as we know, but for others, you may need to have um, you know, banking hats because the traditional form of how we do things just isn't relevant. Good points. Uh, thank you for that, David. And uh, probably moving on to Dick, um, looking at that financial resilience piece, uh, keeping that in mind, uh, uh, you know, how do you view or at least approach, uh, uh, you know, the integration of data to return or to give you that, that return in terms of productivity, efficiency and investment uh, from, you know, looking at, uh, you know, this ecosystem, this open ecosystem? And I think to me, you know, I think to many body, like ecosystem is about win-win, you know, partners in, 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 within the ecosystem should play up to their strengths. And together, we should be able to create greater values than living alone. I think this is the, I think the definition of the ecosystem. We can't have a win-loss, you know, kind of situation, but we got to be win-win. I think the value creation could be like a superb customer experience that could bring new revenue potential. And sometimes it could be the cost saving because I can, you know, I couldn't do that as a cost low as, you know, than our partners. And also it could be like risk mitigation, that kind of thing. So I like, uh, I'd like to give you an example that is practically quite well in Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, Hong Kong government have an app. The app is called I'm Smart. Um, it's pretty a smart app actually. <laughs> and um, the app is basically to serve Hong Kong people that, uh, Hong Kong people can access to the to the app, 
access to hundreds of you know uh, uh, government services, such as like renewal of a driving license, of course after customer authentication. So to me, we see this is a golden source of customer authentication, and at the same time, the government wants more commercial application because it's new. It wants that to be a really a super app in Hong Kong. So the marriage is done because we just embed this app into our Wemo account opening process. And then here's the deal. The government apps is commercialized, so they're happy. And we are happy too, because we can streamline our process by onboarding customer, by removing some really, really control points. And so I think that's exactly what David is talking about, about the risk, you know, all that kind of thing, you know, in the ecosystem, because the data, you know, just, you know, shipping around and then that, that needs extra caution. But we, with a government kind of golden source of, you know, truth, so we can remove most of the control points. And finally, customer is benefited by the very seamless remote account opening. And then the turnaround time cut down from 10 minutes to five minutes. And then it's a win-win-win for everybody. And I think this is a classic example that if we find something that create values and customer is happy, our partner is happy, of course, we need to be happy. And then I think that is the thing that we can create value along, you know, the ecosystem. Everybody is happy and, and, and alive, you know. And also together, I would say the alliances, you know, can just not just, you know, give that value at the present tense. And in future, it could be our edge as well. And then this is something that the, the build of the ecosystem, we need to be smart enough to find good partners, find good use cases, and really, really go for it. Because actually, this is us to approach the government to really to have a collaboration and also accelerate all the all those things because in their plan their commercialization is, 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 is actually we bring their commercialization kind of agenda uh, uh -huh. forward i think this is a thing that we, we need to uh work with our partner in the ecosystem great thank you for that uh dick um so with that said i mean to, to building that that win-win uh with your different partners um, and we've seen this you know the emergence of all of these new technologies uh, particularly this hyper connected sort of 5g environment um, so dick uh, i mean uh, perhaps uh, coming to you first uh, can you share uh, you know some interesting uh, use cases uh, from you know from bank of china's perspective in terms of leveraging you know the existing uh, technology infrastructure that is in place in hong kong i think first of all i think lpa is a big piece obviously because like traditional band like us, you know, paper form, you know, there's a lot of paper form and, and, and even one application, the paper form may ship within organizations for a couple of days from department to department. I think this is the old way of banking. I think RPA really get rid of the paper and really to get customer fulfilled, what their service fulfilled instantly without, you know, that kind of like paper thing. I think that, that is a huge piece. And um, actually also you say big, you know, um, uh, cost saving to us because we can be deployed a lot of our human power to other more at the value service. With previously, with the paper form, a lot of data entry has been involved. So I think RPA is hugely, um, you know, investing to Bank of China and a lot of paper has been get rid of, you know, uh, I, I'm happy to say that. And then I think, you know, back to 5G is about speed. Um, it's not just an improvement, but it's a whole new level. And therefore, it accounts for a lot of you know capabilities. Uh, to start with, it's about our real-time targeting decision engine. Right now, our mobile banking app is able you know to really to understand customer kind of digital footprint and instantly 
can blast some messages. Uh, but of course, you know, with the 5G bandwidth, I would say we can achieve more timely and AI-driven targeting, really supported by the Superdata Highway. And instantly, basically, we know who are streaming, you know, in our live program or assessing, you know, different applications in our mobile banking apps. And we can assess their needs and wants from the suite of AI model built. And almost at the same time, we could blast the best conversation to trigger the conversion. I think the 5G environment and the AI you know, platforms really help us to do really, really micro-targeting and really instant targeting. Right. And uh, and uh, furthermore, to add one more point is about the bandwidth of the 5Gs. Yeah. And I think through the new normal about the pandemic, you know, people are really self-sufficing, right? Doing, you know, the, the, the banking app is really the king, you know, this is really the way to go. Yeah. We are seeing some sort of limitation because, you know, to for some big ticket item, they still need, you know, people to talk to, experts yeah. to talk to, right? So I think the 5Gs really can enhance the multimedia capability of the mobile platform. And literally, our customer can be served either by the robot or by, relation, by, or by the relationship manager anytime, anywhere. I think 5Gs is over a lot of, you know, possibility. It's really combining uh, data, uh, digital, and also human being into one place. Thank you for that, uh, Dick. And uh, uh, David, uh, you know, what opportunities are you seeing in terms of these uh, new technologies, uh, you know, given this hyper-connected uh, 5G environment? Uh, and what are the implications for, uh, you know, this uh, intelligent uh, automation? Before I go into some examples and illustrations, just to remind everyone, the premise and the objective of, let's say, the world of data science and AI, which naturally cohabitats, lives on data. Without data, you don't have it is about finding patterns, about finding behavior. Behavior that can be understood, that could be leveraged on for scenarios of services, products, operational efficiencies, and risk. So with that in mind, and going back to the point earlier about working within an ecosystem and contextualizing finance, if I describe it in that kind of manner, you have scenarios whereby and again, in the Philippines, where we've already built solutions using alternative credit scoring, whereby you would have individuals who you would previously say, oh, please give me your, your uh, credit risk rating. They're like, I don't have one. Or uh, give me your bank statement. You know, a very common request when you apply for a loan, give me your, your bank statement so I can see your ins and outs. And I don't have a bank account. So how do you suddenly break that mold of going from a traditional, sorry, I can't serve you then, I can't provide you this product to, okay, Let's think and look at it about it differently because the underlying objective is understanding uh, viability, viability of afford and affordability, and as well risk. It's not about those rules, however important and established they are. It's about that in the end of the day. How do we establish affordability, uh, uh, reliability, trustworthiness, and and creditworthiness ultimately in the end of the day? So by using such an ecosystem data, whether it's data that's now being generated through applications, through mobile interaction, through, through other sources of media, through partners, able to create that underlying assessment and now suddenly being able to offer a loan. And this is an example we've actually deployed through our, our, um, our tech subsidiary, uh, UBX, a CCAP platform, essentially loans on uh, uh, micro, small, medium enterprises across the board. And these are alternative um, uh, credit scoring driven uh, model. So that's one very uh, evidently critical and, and, and 
actually for me, very exciting example because it proves the value and it proves the, the, the viability of it, of how as an organization we can involve, and like I said, contextualize finance. Another example is even breaking barriers within the organization. I mean, if you think about the, the, the pillars, and again, for very good reasons, you've got retail banking, you've got wholesale banking, you've got, but it's about behavior. I mean, why, why suddenly we had this massive shift towards super apps? Because it's the realization that, you know, customers actually want more than one thing. So how do you now create those interactivity between them? During COVID, when people, you know, were very literally stuck at home, a lot of, organ- a lot of people just said, well, you know what, let me, let me make some income on the side. Let me sell stuff. But then all this time, that's a retail customer. But now this retail customer suddenly became a small medium enterprise or, mi- or a micro uh, 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 small medium enterprise. Previously, from an, a banking engagement, you know, we kind of sit and go, well, if you want to have a, a, a supply financing loan or inventory for, for to, a loan to help manage inventory, you need to apply to me as a wholesale or MSME customer. But you already are my customer. You're already my retail customer. So by understanding data, by leveraging that, it's something we can go and go, hold a second. Would you be interested in this loan? Because we're seeing that you're doing a lot of transactions as an online seller. So that's exactly how we as an organization are using it, exploring it, leveraging on it. And it's exactly situated on data that's now coming from these multiplicity of digital channels and coming from an ecosystem of partners. Now, one last thing I would love to say, and I think it's very critical to remember that with this shift to digital and with this uh, shift to not just automation, but but uh, uh, digital interaction, is it's, it's not just about that. It's the power of using this type of technology, this part of insight, and I call this augmented intelligence. Uh, like I was mentioned earlier by Dick, it's like the people who want I'm one of them, by the way, in some things. You want the human, but you want the human to be empowered with more knowledge and understanding for you. So it's how do you start combining these things? And that's when we get really, it's not one extreme or the other, only humans or only machines. It's, it's that world in between that we should be pursuing. Fair enough. Uh, thank you for that, David. Uh, it's that, that world in between. Um, and with that, uh, I'd like, uh, Dick, uh, to, to come. I, I believe you have a, a presentation just to give us a, a, a talk in terms of how, the, how your institution is really responding you know, to the pandemic uh, in this uh, challenging operating environment. So, so Dick, uh, you know, on that note, uh, perhaps you can share your insights. I think, yes, the new normal, threats or opportunity. Threat is a, is a given, right? You know, pandemic is not something you know we can you know be enjoyable but uh, I think from a business perspective we need to you know look at the, at the bright side of the opportunity so I think this is really really in uh, quite quite you know synchronized with what we have been just talked about like digitalizations so we decided you know to accelerate the digital transformation because this is something that you know the customer wants so therefore uh, we basically focus a lot on you know, our resources and to work on a strategy which is about mobile first. Everything mobile first. So I think in the past two years or so we launched a lot of pretty good stuff, you know, in Hong Kong. And, and this is really driving the behavioral change internally and also you know externally with our customers. And as a result, we got improved NPS. We are very pleased, you know, to have that because this is a ultimate kind of you know, customer liking, you know, where our transformation is a moment of truth, whether they like it or not. So it is a, a really encouraging kind of you know, move. 
And also, young customer acquisition plus 20%, another very good indicator because digital is about younger generation. So that, that the young segment, the behavior, basically we have a microscope over them because whether they like or like their liking or things that they dislike, basically we need to react, react to that because they basically define what's good you know, in the digital world. And also, of course, you know, with the digitalization, we see we are seeing the mobile transaction has been plus 40% year on year. And basically 84% of our transaction now can really go through online. And for younger segment, it's about 90%. And I think this set of result is about how we really embrace, you know, the new new normal. We, we think about what is the new normal. And basically it's about the life state, life, lifestyle has been changed because people with with or without lockdown, you know, people are really quite pretty stuck at home. And um, they do not only banking, shopping, or go 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 crazy online. You know, my wife is not not doing online banking, but online shopping. You know, all the time. And and basically, I can see, you know, it's a good method for that. The online shopping, you know, the business, they they, they literally is turn your living room or no 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 not your living room, turn your bedroom into their fitting room. You know, they just ship things to you. You know, you like it, you buy it, you don't like it, ship them back to them. So I think this is the thing that the lifestyle has been changed a lot. So for banking, yes, we are trying to move our branch, move our banking inter banking services to your home, kind of home banking kind of concept. And also we are seeing, you know, banking anywhere because previously when you go to the branch it's about nine to five, right? But now with the digital app, it's around the car kind of service. And also we see the rise of AI. AI has been there for quite some time, but I think this is the moment of truth for AI because in the digital world, and exactly what David has been talking about, you know, we need to get we need to be empower our people you know, to do the business. Something sometimes a robot can do, but sometimes we need still need that human touch. But our staff has to be you know, empowered by AI. I think that the rise of AI is very critical. Uh, element is a new normal. And last but not least, I think it's a result. Hyper personalized service, I think it's not a want, it's a must. Uh, the, I think this is the thing that people are seeing them as an individual. And I think in the past, we, we, we can't quite figure it out because I think it's a, a lot of limitation about the data. That means we have a lot of limitation about understanding the customer, but, but right now, with the like, 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 like the explosion of about the data science and also the technology, I think we have been able to really, to really dissect our segment and all and almost you know to to go for a segment of one kind of you know concept. I think this is a way we set the scene about our new normal and also this four pillar is a thing that we 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 we, we, are, we are actually is our, our our fundamental question we ask every day. So to grab the opportunity, today I'd like to, you know, just you know, uh, shed some light um, also uh, how we are going to deliver our digital transformation. I think first of all, it's about a human-centered design. I think customer first for whatever we do, digital or non-digital, customer come first. Secondly, AI, I think with <laughs> no need to further, you know, explain. This is, I think, the key to the future. The third piece is very critical, the nimble banking system. If we didn't pay good attention to the banking system, I think it could be our weakest link and also is a major hindrance you know, for our future success. 
finally about a digital capability, again, this is the moment of truth, whether the all sort of thinking, development, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the innovation, you know, data application and AI, we can do all these things right, but it, we cannot, you know, bring it forward, you know, to our customer with a digital platform. I think all the effort, you know, have been wasted. So this is a four, four thing that uh, I would like to, you know, uh, talk about this one by one. Human-centered design. Uh, I'm no expert about design thinking, but uh, this is a thing that we adopted in our organizations. I think design thinking is a sense that, you know, we just put customer, um, you know, at the center. And so for whatever we do, whatever we change, whatever we develop, it needs to add value to the customer. But to doing that, it's not just about a thinking. At the right hand side, we have a lot of like data support, insight support, you know, to really to make design thinking in practice. For example, we 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 have a um, um, consumer panel. We set up consumer panel two years ago, and so we frequently, almost weekly, we will ask question five six questions to selected group of customer because we instantly we want to know their liking whatever we have a new idea or we just want something out we want to get that insight straight away because design thinking is about a, a looping a very automatic looping so we with the inside loop into the loop and then and then we can we can we can have a more lovable product per se net promoter score again is a very very important metric and that and then that is a a common kpi I think uh, for many departments in our organizations. So whatever we do, we need the liking from the customer. And you can see we have our NPS, we have TNPS. What is TNPS? It's about transactional uh, NPS. So when you finish a transaction at the mobile banking apps, we, we, we instantly will ask about your liking. You give some, you know, score your experience with us. And I think this is a thing that Oh, last but not least is about our AI model. So, so this is, I think, a, a means to the end. And 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 we we invest a lot you know, to do model modeling and understand and, and understand the customer needs. AI, uh, I think we would spend a lot of time, you know, talk about. It, but AI is not just a buzzword, not just a strategy. You need to put things into practice. I think a good data infrastructure is a very as as, as equally important than your data scientist. The third piece, um, Nimble, the banking system, branch mobile banking chatbot, um, quite a common phenomenon that this branch channel is quite siloed. The data is not really connected. I think we spend quite a, quite a significant of time, you know, to build a super data highway such that, you know, the data can, you know, really can, 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 can really connect to, you know, the different delivery channel. I think that is the key um, to, to, um, to have a better uh, and personalized customer service. Last but not least is about the data capabilities. Well, to us, this is our, you know, award-winning mobile banking apps. So it's about, we want to adopt a banking as a platform. At the right-hand side, you see every single app would have a, like hundred of basic services, self-service, but we put five, new elements into it. Uh, Real-time conversational prompts, that means, you know, we connected with a decision engine that when they browse our, 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 our browse into, uh, in our, our mobile banking apps, we can 
have an instant targeting capability. Second is of how to you know connect with RM, as I said, you know, man the service. So there's a button in there when they really to when they're doing their transaction and they have a question they want to to get help from the from the RM, there's a button that that they will bring them to the RM. Live channel for live streaming. So we have live live, live program um, every week. And uh, we track the footprint that therefore we can have instant messaging. And last but not least, it's about the open API, you know, infrastructure to connect with other apps. Um, I give an example about connecting with a golden source of customer authentication provided by the government. So I think this is the architecture is a really banking as a platform. Um, I think we, we just started it. We, there's no, no near perfection, but uh, I think this is a way combining our effort in AI. So this is the way that we, we continue to um, develop our capabilities. And I want to end my sharing by this slide. I think this, um, this question is bothering me, bothering me quite a bit. It's about um, um, what is the next limitation to our good work? And I mm. think I uh, just want to flow, you know, the business owner and data scientists are really a, a different discipline. And I think they just didn't 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 know each other. Because some some of one of those is a left wing person, some of those is a right wing person. I think um, uh, I don't want to you know go through uh, any further. But I think this is if we can have a a, a working model that the business owner and data science can work really good together. I think this is um, a, a, a beautiful beautiful thing you know to go uh, uh, for future. Um, yeah, it's running out of time, so I just end my sharing right now. Great. Um, thank you for that, Dick. There's uh, certainly a lot to unpack uh, in terms of the application and use cases for, for AI. And, and I agree with you, it is it's, uh, the moment of truth um, you know, for, for uh, intelligent automation. Um, so, so David, uh, on that, I mean, looking at you know the uh, you know potential applications, uh, all the digital fraud that has occurred, particularly post uh, or at least during the um, uh, pandemic, uh, and how institutions and organizations have had to respond. Uh, you know, whether it's those data breaches, the account takeover, um, and generally uh, speaking, uh, you know, looking at uh, how banks need to be mindful of their KYC, AML, or counterterrorism financing uh, compliance uh, or processes. So, uh, you know, how are we looking to leverage, uh, you know, uh, AI technologies, especially when, when we consider all of the latest in terms of biometrics and digital identification or, or transaction monitoring? I think it's especially in the world of, if I just bucket it as financial crimes, it's extremely important extremely important to keep things parsimonious because in the end of the day, it's about how do you separate between oddities, meaning I transact in a certain manner and suddenly I sold my house and you block my account. I mean, it's, it's a, a large inconvenience on a very legitimate, irregular, but legitimate transaction versus the case of a genuine bad actor. And it's, I mean, uh, poking a bit of fun, but obviously it's a, not an easy thing when you're looking at such a scale and a volume as an institution. So that's why I'm saying it's extremely important to keep it possible. The challenge is there actually less about the advancement of technology, but it is the willingness, readiness, and risk tolerance of organizations and regulators in adopting it. And going back to what I was mentioning earlier, that the whole essence of this world is about finding behavior. And 
Coincidentally enough, that's exactly what is necessary when you're dealing with financial crimes and bad actors. Again, it's not going from one extreme to another, saying that we're going to displace all our current systems and now just have this omnipresence AI to tell us what's right or wrong. No, that's going to stay. But how do we layer it? How do we add the additional layers of defense in order to support the resiliency of the financial systems and making sure that, you know, believe it or not, that financial uh, uh, experience is a delightful experience. Some good insights there, uh, uh, David. In terms of the uh, chatbots and and how you know we're seeing the range or number of chatbots, uh, you know that uh, various uh, brands and providers are offering. Can you give us a, a, a sort of a, a, you know some insight in terms of how these AI powered platforms are are really helping build that trust that's needed, especially in their conversational interactions with customers, and where are the gaps that you're seeing that that institutions need to to look at today? Certainly. I think, first of all, like conversational interaction, you know, got to be smart and accurate. So I think AI platform can really to help, you know, the chatbot to be smarter. So for example, like uh, NLP is a very good investment. And in fact, Chinese language, you know, we speak Cantonese, Chinese, or even Mandarin is a quite a complex language. And uh, if not, you can try to learn. <laughs> it, it will take a while, you know, to really get a good traction about the Chinese language. And so I think coping with, you know, NLP and coping with other conversational technologies, tools like sentiment analysis and also some other AI model, I think hyper-personalization becomes possible and it paved the way that for the smarter, uh, you know, conversational interaction. AI platform can also automate the learning loop and also accelerate the training process. We all know chatbot got to be trained and it got to be trained before come to life actually. So basically we use those technology to train our chatbot. Going forward, more contextual kind of you know, technology will come in place and we can understand more even the tone about the customer. I think I think we can get not only you know the 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 the, the, the basic is the basic, you know, uh, the instruction from the customer. And I think from now on, we can, you know, take more complex instruction by the customer as well. Just a, just a final question uh, to you, David, uh, on that note, on the same theme, uh, in terms of hyper-personalization, uh, you know, how far do you think we can go, uh, given all of these, you know, large pools of data and uh, consolidation and integration that is taking place? So I think it is truly limited in our imagination. Um, if we focus on how do we make sure that we're enabling people um, moments of life. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, you know, to, to David and to Dick. Um, just to quickly summarize here, really looking at, you know, transforming the, the customer experience, uh, you know, and, and being able to at least apply uh, AI and, and uh, you know, develop deeper insights from data is certainly the way to go and op- offers a lot of opportunities for institutions uh, in terms of uh, innovation and being able to service their customers more effectively. Um, I'd like to thank, of course, David and Dick for having joined us for this session. We hope that the audience has also benefited from their insights and, and the sharing of their perspectives and experiences. Uh, so please do stay with us. We do have another exciting session uh, coming up shortly, uh, examining the next phase of uh, real-time payments and how that's being powered by blockchain and APIs. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you to all our speakers and moderator, ladies and gentlemen, to lead us in the exciting session on 
the next phase in payments, utilizing blockchain and APIs to revolutionize real-time payments. Allow me to introduce Mr. Richard Hartung, International Resource Director at The Asian Banker. Great, thank you very much. And we do have a fantastic session today. Now, looking at the next phase in payments, whether it's blockchain or APIs, a lot is, is really revolutionizing payments. Uh, there are consolidated platforms. There's more happening, uh, help, happening on digital and mobile. Blockchain is coming in gradually. Customer experience is getting better. Uh, there's monetization uh, considerations that people have to look at. We're very fortunate today to have three excellent panelists. Um, we uh, will have uh, Chipo Mushwana, Executive for Emerging Innovation at NetBank. Welcome, Chipo. Uh, Sam Everington, the CEO of Engine by Starling Bank and Salim Danani, who is the co-founder of BigPay. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, I'll have a series of questions, but I also ask the audience, if you have questions, please do put them in the chat and we will try to answer as many as possible. It's a fascinating section. We can take advantage of the experts who are with us today. So Chipo, let me uh, start with you. Um, if you can provide a, a short uh, description of your role at your firm and let us know what are some of the most impactful innovations you've seen over the past year. Good morning, everybody. At this side of the world, it's early in the morning. It's before 10 a.m., so I'll say good morning. I'm really excited to be here. So NetBank effectively is one of the biggest uh, big retail banks in South Africa. Um, and effectively, I am running the emerging innovation and emerging payments business within retail and business banking. And that really involves looking at next generation technology, how we bring that into the business, how we enhance our customer experience, grow market share, and obviously defend our position in the market. So that's effectively um, what we do. Some of the interesting technologies that we've seen over the last year, um, things like soft pause from an acquiring perspective, I think has become key for us. And it was um, first in Africa that we launched from a NetBank perspective um, in chat business models through platforms such as WhatsApp as well um, that we've seen coming through um, from a payment perspective and obviously open finance, embedded finance, which the regulator is quite interested in from a South African perspective as well, including digital ID. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And Sam, uh, same question. If you can describe what you do um, and also let us know what some of the innovations you're seeing are, please. Yep. Good afternoon or good morning over here as well. I'm Sam Everington. I'm the CEO of Engine, which is the technology arm of Starling Bank. Uh, Starling is one of the, the UK's leading and, and only profitable digitally native banks. Uh, we've got 3 million customers, including uh, almost half a million SME, which is an 8% market share in, in the UK for that. Uh, and we offer a range of banking products, uh, all delivered and serviced on our own technology platform. So Engine's the technology business. We not only run our own bank on that on our platform, but we power a number of other financial institutions around the world as well. Uh, I, I mean, the moment everyone is talking payments and, and what's going to happen with, with blockchain and things, but actually we're not seeing a, a huge amount really happening there. It's the consumers' expectations, the switches to real-time payments, the way the frauds are migrating from cards to the alternative payment methods. Fraud on cards has long been the biggest problems for banks, but actually in the UK, bank-to-bank real-time payments have overtaken cards now for fraud and so uh, a lot of the innovations is actually in <laughs> trying to improve the security and, and prevent fraud on, on alternative channels. 
Nice. And, and the, uh, the bank to bank payments have taken off in, in Asia as well. What are you doing to, to prevent the fraud on it? And what types of fraud are you seeing? The real challenge with in card fraud, generally, it's unauthorized. The details were being cloned and another actor was instructing the payment. Most bank to bank security was designed to authenticate users very well. Banks have been good at that for a long time uh, on their digital channels. And so it's generally people being tricked into instructing legitimate payments. So you correctly authorize the account holder, but they are making a payment they believe they need to make either to the wrong details or because they're being pressured and tricked into it. Something we call them an authorized push payment in the UK. Fascinating. We have lots to learn. Thank you. And Salim, same question. Give us a little detail on what you're doing, please, and some of the innovations. You're doing some really interesting things uh, you know, with Big Pay. Sure. Thank you very much for uh, also having me, and, and, and good to meet everyone. Um, thanks for tuning in. So Big Pay is there was a large, well, one of those fastest-growing near banks in Southeast Asia. Uh, we came into the market. We launched in 2018, and our problem statement was that there is a large you know, patchwork of population across the whole region that doesn't have access to, you know, a full suite of financial services. And if you take that middle class spectrum across the region, that's where we started. So we started off in Malaysia. Uh, we launched in 2018 uh, with, a, with a very simple e-money product, not unlike some of our counterpart or some of our uh, as a comparable businesses that we've seen in the UK, right? And since then, what we've done, we've, we've expanded our, our, our services to launch remittances, to have credit, um, you know, insurance, so micro insurance, and and it's basically an, an unbundled services. So unlike my my two colleagues on, on the call here, I have the bank licenses. We've launched on unbundled licenses across the region, be that in Malaysia or Singapore, and soon to come in Thailand, uh, Philippines, and Indonesia. Um, I think for us, the key principles that we stay extremely religious to when we're developing products, when you talk about innovations, is we're constantly trying to make sure that we're lowering costs because you know. Because we are operating on unbundled licenses, typically speaking, especially as we go into things like lending, we are using bank intermediaries. And so as we do that, it's more important for us to ensure that we are you know, squeezing out the margins so we can pass that benefit back to our customers and still remain competitive. That's been a big focus of ours, and especially when we talk about embedded finance and uh, open APIs and blockchain, it's definitely things that we can uh, elaborate on some of the products that we're launching and some of the innovations and how we see them panning out, especially in Southeast Asia and ASEAN. One of the things that, that um, is important is customer experience. So uh, Sam, we'll start with you, but what do you see um, the banks are doing to build the technologies and the payments up to the level of customer experience um, and potentially services in, in multiple fields uh, that people have in the rest of their lives? Yeah, customer experience and engagement is quite interesting in a bank context because actually some of the happiest customers you have are some of the least engaged. It's not something we all want to spend our time dealing with. And if the money comes in and the bills pay themselves and notifications tell you what's going on and you never have to open the app, you can be a very satisfied customer. But Asleem, uh, what are you seeing on the, the customer experience side? I think it's hygiene in many ways, right? Like, I mean, I think yeah, best customer experience in financial services, they just want the best experience in general. They're either trying to buy something or they're trying to have a particular, they're trying to have, you know, have a particular experience and you know, uh, travel somewhere or you know, whatever it may be. So it's up to or, you know, whether, that's, whether that means making a payment or getting a loan or um, being able to check out seamlessly as part of one of those things. You know, I think ultimately that's what the goal is. And I think that as, you know, financial institutions have a role to be able to provide that along with all the compliance and making sure that we are we're managing risk and protecting our customers. Thank you. And, and Chipo, what are you seeing in customer experience? So it's so interesting because as a legacy bank, as we might call it, I think we've, we've come to the realization that 
we have to invest heavily in these digital capabilities that we see all these neobanks presenting to the customers. Um, there's a strong desire and a need to offer this seamless customer experience, but also ensuring that there's safety in the ecosystem or in the national payment system. So we have this dual responsibility that um, we have to perform as a bank. And as a result, we're also seeing these new business models that are beginning to evolve and new avenues for growth as well, where you've got platform business type businesses, We've got discussions around data monetization, et cetera. About three years ago, what we decided to do was to then um, launch a super app into the market. And we were the first bank that did that. Um, and we've been running a super app since then. Um, and that's one part of the strategy. The other part of the strategy is obviously to partner with other super apps to be able to provide a seamless experience or um, offer everything that our customers need. But it's no easy task at all because we still have legacy systems. We still have got um, systems that don't talk to each other. We've still got manual processes in, in, in play. So there is a balance between running an old organization, if I may put it that way, and sort of building a new one um, as well and trying to maintain the seamless customer experiences and bring it all together, um, services, functions into this single platform so that customers can feel confident um, in our abilities as a traditional bank. But let me just build on that with a question about the, the super app, because, you know, we've seen that in China, you can run your life off of um, you know, WeChat there or whatever else. But what what is on your super app? You know, what, what are what are customers using? Yeah, so we started off with um, what we called home services and um, life services. So in the home services, we effectively made artisan services available. So you're looking for a plumber, you're looking for a painter, you're looking for a builder, stuff that people look for every single day and they normally have to get referrals. So we had that. And then we also had what we called life experiences. So it's got restaurants, um, we integrated into Uber, et cetera. And that's how we, we started off and obviously driven by payments in the back end. So it's a double-sided marketplace where you've got um, service providers and then you've got customers coming through as well. And we are gradually expanding that into other services um, based on what we're seeing in the market uh, and based on what we're seeing customers consuming um, the most from a super app. So since we've launched in South Africa, <clears throat> what I know is that um, one of the telcos has launched a super app as well well um so there's a lot of the competition is heating up um from a super app perspective it's been a learning journey for us but one that we're extremely pleased about um we are, we've crossed the 1 million mark active users on our super app um as well which is great um for us as a retail bank fantastic uh, we need you to come over to singapore and uh, home services one sounds fantastic and it, we don't have it yet so we'll get you over here <laughs> Um, let me move on, and then Salim, let me just ask you, um, you know, we, we heard about RPA in, in the previous discussion and, and some of the things that are being done to, to bring down costs. Uh, what are you seeing to reduce costs and also to drive up revenue uh, on payments? And then when you're doing that, how do you balance increasing profitability with also maintaining NPS so your customers don't go away? Big question. All right, let me try and break that one down. So I would say that I could just to put in perspective, we have about 2.9 million users, about you know 1.2 million are, are, are active, and, and we process a few hundred million a month. And we have about less than 200 people uh, in the business, um, and we operate a full suite of products. 
we've had automation and making things stream you know making sure that we use tech as a solution and you know our business is about 60% tech and product we focus on tech to solve the problems so we've never had and we've never really look at you know warm bodies as a way to solve a process problem and therefore we have less need for process automation because it's already automated from day one i do think that at many organizations in financial services that are going through a transform transformation you know, going through transformation will confuse rpa with ai and you know uh, machine learning and i just want to emphasize that point like, like there are two very different things it is fantastic that organizations are doing it and and you know obviously we hope that that automation can be passed off as passed on as savings to the retail customer and the more that happens the more competitive the landscape gets and in the end the more the better product that the, you know the user gets i think that the institutions that can innovate and ensure that the cost they can still remain competitive still give customers a fantastic product at the best in the with at good prices and not basically gouging them on fees and find other ways to have a good return on equity i think that's where the, the institutions will have high nps scores and still remain competitive and i think right and and chipo you're more um uh traditional bank so i'll uh, probably have a somewhat different perspective on here on that balance between reducing costs and uh, increasing profitability and the automation side yeah to 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 some extent we do so for us you can imagine one of the first things by that we look at is um moving away from traditional brick and mortar um so particularly with um covid and the pandemic over the last 2 years what we did is we reduced our physical footprints um built what we call light bank branches that are mobile um as opposed to the big fixed structures um that we have um there's been a lot of focus towards um digital channels and ecosystems right to reduce um all these costs um embedding our products through api so we've got an api marketplace where on one side we're a landlord on the other side we are a tenant so effectively we want to play the role of an ecosystem orchestrator and and be able to distribute our products not just through the channels that we own but channels that um our partners own so and from a south african perspective um i mean our economy is not going through the greatest um of times at the moment so what we're also seeing is a regulator making a concerted effort or putting pressure on us as traditional banks um around how do we make financial services affordable accessible and actually running industry wide projects that banks are forced to participate in um where traditional revenue models that we would have enjoyed previously are not available so then we are forced to think outside the box and we are forced to 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 think about all these new capabilities but most importantly partner with tech companies or fintech businesses to be able to survive um so effectively this is where we find ourselves from a net bank um perspective around reducing costs and just making it so much cheaper so we've got this rapid payments program in south africa which is one that recently is going live or is in pilot at the moment and effectively it's about financial inclusion um instant p2p payments etc um and this payment stream offers a mutually beneficial solution both to consumers and banks by removing the cost of cash because 1 in 10 people in south africa typically use cash 
um, because our value chain from an acquiring perspective is not as mature. Um, so we've got those issues. It costs the South African economy about 1.8 billion a year, I think, to process cash, which is significant. So all these things are things that banks not only have to think about, but um, the regulator is thinking about and putting pressure on us um, as well. Thank you. Uh, and, and Sam, that balance between uh, reducing costs and um, increasing profitability for payments? Yeah, banks don't really have a, a choice to reduce costs. Interchanges under under pressure everywhere. A lot of the fees banks have historically charged in other markets uh, uh, are under pressure from regulators too. And uh, as we progress on to uh, the kind of world of open banking and payment APIs and things, actually the interchange can disappear entirely. If you switch from a card payment to a real-time bank-to-bank payment, there's no interchange, but it becomes a payment scheme cost to the bank to fulfill that payment. But consumers continue to expect them to be free. Uh, and, and those payment scheme costs vary hugely by market too. Uh, domestic payment schemes can rate, range from like, well, I mean, SWIFT can be tens of dollars. Domestic payments can be like a kind of US dollar level per payment uh, down to like a single cent per market per payment in some markets. Uh, and even the digital kind of non-centralized payment alternatives, the cryptocurrency things have traditional significant transaction costs because of the energy just for the computation. Um, so banks have got no choice. They've got to reduce costs because their fees and their margins and their interchange revenue are going to come under threat. And so the only way to maintain the profitability is to, to sort out the, the costs of the infrastructure they're running on and to automate processing where they can. Uh, I think NPS-wise, most consumers ultimately don't care how they're paying. They're not seeing the fees. They're not seeing the costs of processing these. They just want to secure seamless, uh, convenient experience. Uh, and that includes not just the experience in making the payment, but actually what happens when things go wrong, which is being overlooked a lot. And, and so any markets at the moment is what, what does the consumer protection look like if you pay with bank to bank transfers in the UK? You don't get anywhere near the same protection you do paying by direct debit or over the card rails. And if you pay by uh, crypto or blockchain kind of payment methods, you get no protection at all, potentially. Actually, debit cards have been very good at this. There's a central arbitrator of disputes. Everyone's got collateral posted. Uh, to ensure the consumers are going to get paid back. Uh, and so if regulators are going to encourage fees down by switching to cheaper payment processing methods, the industry and the regulators need to work together to put alternative protections in place for consumers too, because the criminals will switch. And if the criminals switch, consumers start losing out, as we see in the UK, that there'll be significant pressure politically and, and from regulators to deal with that. But at the moment, the banks are effectively mandated to reimburse customers for the fraud risk in the UK, but they don't get any revenue from the transactions anymore, uh, which has historically covered the fraud costs on, on the card rails. So we've all got a lot of work to do. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, we have a question in, in the chat, which is, um, can you tell us about the relationship between customer experience and AI? What are we doing to improve it, to personalize, to prevent fraud, to make the, how are we using uh, AI to I'll make the customer experience better. And I'll just open it up to whoever would like to take the question. We've had some opinions on this as bank. We're quite unusual. We don't use chatbots or anything to try and interact with our customers. If you get in touch with our support, it'll go straight through to a human. Um, because I've never met anyone who's particularly enjoyed the experience of interacting with a chatbot. And if your digital experience and your digital journeys are good enough and the machine can predict what you're going to do, you probably should have just built a first-class digital experience to allow the customer to self-serve anyway. And if your machines could predict a need, they probably should have actively notified in some way into the relevant experience. So the, the AI, I think, for most people should be kind of hidden in the background and 
uh, either making your operations teams more efficient. If you have a reasonable idea why a customer is getting in touch, you should put the right screens in front of the agent serving them on the other side. So the agent's always interacting with the chat system rather than the, uh, the end customer, or you're using it to dynamically nudge and notify and, and drive consumer behavior, but in a way that doesn't feel like they're, they're interacting with an AI system that's pretending to be human because they're a long way off being as good as humans. And if you've reached the point in your mind where you need to talk to a human, you probably should let the customer do that. Sure. Uh, Salim? I couldn't agree more with Sam. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's one of two things. I think the only bit that I would say beyond the operational side of it is that a lot of financial institutions or fintechs, you know, similar, say we want to integrate absolutely everything that the customer could possibly want on any day for the next 10 years. And I think that's not the right approach per se, right? Because you have typically the best fintechs are going to go after a particular segment, firstly. And you know, even within that segment, different people have different needs. And if you can find models to understand what the customer wants, uh, and basically hyper-personalization, which is a bit of a buzzword, so I was reluctant to use it, but, but ultimately, if you can try and help the customer have a little bit of a better financial well-being or a bit of a, a better financial life, be that through giving them a product that they actually need or actually want, and or making your operations better, or make your risk better, or understand your own risk better, like credit risk, for example, by using models, uh, AI models, and then able to give a product that the customer wouldn't otherwise have access to. I think that's really solving the problem, and that's really creating a, a great customer experience uh, for your users. Okay, um, looking further ahead, now one of the things that's being developed in, in more countries is central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Um, China, obviously, is, is probably the lead on this. Uh, everybody who resisted it seems to be jumping in. Um, but what do you see happening with um, the central bank digital currencies? Are, are you beginning to prepare for that or, or think about that? Um, you could throw in crypto currencies if you want to or totally ignore crypto. Um, but especially the central bank digital currencies, what are, what are you seeing or preparing for on that, if, if anything. Thank you so much. So from a South African perspective, maybe let me just lead in with the fact that our regulator is actively um, investigating CBDCs and the launch of a CBDC in South Africa at the moment. So there's been position papers that have been written and out for comments, et cetera. We all know that CBDCs present this great opportunity to capture these cash-based payments, which is what we have an issue with from a South African perspective. But I do think that if designed um, smartly, they can potentially offer more resilience, more safety, greater availability, lower costs um, um, than private forms of digital money, actually. So I am in favor of CBDCs um, based on what they present. And there's clearly a case for it um, for CBDCs. The payments industry can't ignore um, the general crypto revolution as we might call it, um, particularly with P2P or B2B um, worldwide. And now we talk cross-border, cross-border, not just P2P, but cross-border B2B as well. So all these things have become extremely important and we need to make them mainstream um, from a CBDC perspective. So we are watching quite closely at markets that have led from a CBDC perspective and getting those lessons into our own um, spaces and industry as banks so that we can launch one from a South African um, perspective. But the opportunity also lies in the management of these digital currencies where banks need to remain proactive 
right, with their offerings to the public, whether it includes acquisition, holding, transactionability, interest, manageability, investment, all those things are things that we really need to think about. And the threat for me really lies in the design itself and what some of the regulatory measures um, are going to be are going to be put in place by South Africa in this instance. So um, yeah, there's this, that's really my thinking around CBDCs at the moment. Right, thank you. And, and it, it is South Africa in one sense, but there's the interoperability and cross-border that BIS is working on and others. So it exactly. uh, they go beyond it before too long too. Mm -hmm. um, Sam, uh, your thoughts on CBDCs? Yeah, I, I think every central bank is looking into it. it it's a process we're engaging with. There'll be a, a lot of discussion and, and talking and proposition papers around this for a while, I think, before we see much operating in market. Uh, so it's not something we're preparing for really as an organization at this point, changing our, our banking systems and pay, payment gateways is something we're very comfortable with. We're doing it every day. And so ultimately, whatever tech change becomes necessary, we, we can get that done quickly. Uh, we're already running accounts in something like 27 currencies and processing payments all over the world. So we're ready for that. I think at this point, the industry just needs to engage with the regulators, work out what it's going to be, what it's going to look like, how the interactions and interoperability and the exchange between them is going to work, and, and how do we do so in at a suitable level of performance and a suitably low com computational transaction cost. Project Dunbar and BIS's you know, project is great, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Like I think the reality is, is that most central banks, yes, they'll say they want it when it's a bull run and they'll, they'll, they'll say they'll bash crypto when it's a bear run, right? I mean, ultimately, it's the technology is here to stay for a while, right? And there are some very friendly regulators and there are some regulators that just do it because, you know, they need to say they're part of some kind of this, some good PR opportunities. Um, very few countries have actually enabled it. There are some working projects, but there aren't that many. The reality is that, that this fundamentally can change the way, again, it's a means to an end, right? It's just changing the way certain processes are done. So programmable money is what CBDCs will allow ultimately. And so where are the real innovations gonna happen around it? And what are the secondary kind of developments that we're gonna see? It's gonna be around tax. It's gonna be around uh, you know, overnight repo markets. It's gonna be around how banks share the liquidity around with the central bank, for example, the speed at which it's done and the efficiency of what it's done. It's going to change the nature of clearing and like the ability of banks to generate money from from clear like you know from clearing like there's going to be the intermediaries are going to be removed right so and then there is this whole complexity i mean outside of you know major currency markets right which is going to be around exotics and like if you are in a central bank or a ministry of finance in a, in a country that's running exotics like you don't want cbdc's or if you do want cbdc's they're not going to operate in the way that evangelists in blockchain or crypto think it's going to work, right? So there's going to be a disconnect here. So in the end, what do I think is going to happen? I think that you're going to see the likes of USDC and USDT, which are going to be, and UST as well, I will address the you know elephant in the room. And you know, you'll see privately managed stable coins, which is basically a CBDC in many ways, right? Some of them, which are algo stables or algorithmic stable coins for the uninitiated, that is basically like where you know, a computer or a chain or an algorithm is deciding on, you know, kind of uh, the ability of, of what the backing is. Sometimes they don't work vis-a-vis -vis the $80 billion fallout that just happened a, a few weeks ago. But others like, you know, USDC and USDT are going to continue staying. And so I think the very interesting part that we're going to see and what BigPay is extremely uh, interested in, in participating in is the private stablecoin market. And how can we create efficiencies for our users 
uh, and also you know, bypass, I would say, some of the inefficiencies of intermediaries in the regional clearing markets um, uh, by using private uh, CBDCs as we're seeing them grow across the region. But very specifically focusing on the trust-based ones where 100% of liquid assets, highly liquid assets, uh, are, kept in, are kept in trust at credible institutions such as banks, circle closes. Um, I want to ask you a question about APIs. I think, Sam, you had mentioned APIs earlier. Um, so what are some of the things that, that you're working on, some models you're seeing uh, with APIs that are working well, sort of key success factors and how they're being used to, to monetize, you know, bring in revenue um, in, in uh, what you're doing with payments? And then I'll go on to, to Salim and Chipo. To be frank, the models we're seeing working with people with APIs commercially and open payment infrastructure are not necessarily particularly innovative. They're largely moving merchant payments to acquirers for accepting card payments to something lower cost, but effectively you're paying a payment API provider for processing an interbank payment instead, uh, just through the open infrastructure. Uh, you, you get some elements of referral fee models for kind of data exchange over APIs and things to give more confidence there. Uh, and I, I guess one of the few things we are seeing some people starting to commercialize and monetize is APIs to access identity and particularly, particularly proven identity. It's one of the things banks are one of the few trusted custodians of around the world because their ML and financial crime obligations means they've verified identities to a much greater extent than pretty much any other digital product and service provider. Uh, and so there's a value to being able to prove who someone is online for lots of unregulated sectors through everything from gambling websites through to retailers and and merchants through to more fintech type players and we're seeing some models now where people are starting to set up kind of standardized apis where you can then effectively log in with your bank and share your proven name and address and date of birth and, and that kind of information that has a value to someone uh, that's probably the most innovative bit i'm seeing actually happen in the market today thank you Salim. what are you seeing with the apis PSD2, like in AISPs and PISPs in Europe, was, was probably the most advanced. It's probably gotten in the public sector, like with regulation. Um, I think it's going to be, there's fundamental pillars that are required around it, like, you know, data protection, like GDPR, for example, that you have in, 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 in Europe. I think that you have a patchwork of it. And I'm speaking from a very uh, a Southeast Asian perspective. So, excuse me, I'm giving the nuance here, right? So, like, you know, in Southeast Asia, you have different policies, you know, getting open banking in one market's hard enough, let alone across the region. Uh, you know, at least the good thing is there's interoperability coming on with rails, like interoperability with payments is a fantastic initiative by the ASEAN, ASEAN players. And that's really evolving and that's really creating, uh, you know, a lot of uh, innovation. And I think what you will really see is um, that opening up, hopefully into open banking, where players can really use, uh, uh, you know, I'd say open APIs to gather data. I think the it will become, it's not necessarily a revenue model, I would say, now anymore around giving people information. I think that's hygiene. I think you need to do that. I think where it comes in is giving people more personalized products and being able to manage your risk better by having that information and understanding your customer better. I think that's where the, the monetization really comes in. And if customers trust you, they give you that data, then you can make, like, for example, credit risk assessments better and you can, you can then monetize with, uh, you know, a better quality loans or... Uh, closer to the quality risk curve, essentially. Excellent, thank you. Chipo? Uh, yeah, so so like I did say, we do have an API marketplace. We've got about 100 plus APIs that we've got in that marketplace. 
Um, and we are playing this ecosystem orchestrator role where we want to consume APIs from other marketplaces now that have launched. But some key models that we're seeing on our side is the revenue share models for the distribution of our bank products, um, some particularly personal loans and asset finance. So we're seeing that um, taking off quite a bit um, from our perspective. Transaction fees for payments as well is the other model that we're seeing coming through. Um, subscription fees for wallets. So those are the top three models that we see coming through from our perspective right now that we think have got some form of scale. Um, uh, but there's there's a lot of conversation. We have um, regulation expected to come out at the end of this year. So we find ourselves in open finance with our regulator dabbing their fit into data sharing models as well. So we are quite, uh, we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place and we sort of see these models coming through until the regulator gives us clearer guidance on what to do, particularly with the data pieces. So before we close, what, I, what I'd like to ask is sort of what's one key takeaway you'd like everyone to leave with today? Something you've talked about already or something else that we haven't touched on that when you're looking at the at payments, you know, what, what's the one key takeaway? So I think for me, a key takeaway, um, financial services obviously is going through changes and has been probably for the last decade in any case. But I do think from my experience, um, it's a cons it's a constant and consistent change. So it's not just building um, for the customer of tomorrow, but building for the customer on a day to day and consistently staying on top of that because financial services are embedded in everything that we do. So their form, structure, nature has changed completely. Um, so there's a challenge, not just for traditional banks, but everybody that wants to participate um, in any form of financial services to be able to understand the terms of engagement or what the new playing field um, sort of looks like. So I think for me, that's really a key takeaway. Legacy systems, strongholds, extensive approval structures, all these things need to fall away for traditional banks. We know that. Um, and unfortunately, it's not something we can do even in 24 months. It's not a three-year project and a very costly one at that. Um, but it yeah. takes time. The other thing that we see a lot is that customers trust banks. Yeah. Um, and that's really important. So if anything goes wrong, if, if I lose money today, I'm not going to call the fintech. I'm going to call the bank and say, oh, I've right. lost money. Um, yeah. So, so those, those are some of the things that we really need to bear in mind um, and key takeaways that I think about, particularly in this journey that is constantly evolving and that we are part of. Fantastic. Thank you. Sam? My takeaway would be margins of revenues for payments are under threat, though, both from the fee income and the interchange and the, the consumer expectations have changed. Uh, both the, in terms of the experience and the contextual awareness of the services they're interacting with. Uh, there's this belief everything should be deeply integrated in real time and, and most banks are still a long way from being able to deliver this. So uh, I think my takeaway is if you want to maintain your margins, you've, you've got to deal with your cost base. Uh, and the only way to get the cost base of a digital native player is to tackle and modernize your cause. The days of applying sticking plasters and deferring investment are, are really reaching their limits now. Great reminder. Thank you very much. Um, so I think, you know, ultimately, you know, people think that banks are generally far further behind than they actually are in innovating. And people think that fintechs are further ahead than they really are in being able to solve the problems around, like, let's say, cost of funds and trust and whatnot. So there's probably going to be a very interesting opportunity as we go into a quantitative tightening environment where it's going to be a bit harder to monetize some of these fintech plays 
um, especially with downward pressure on payments markets, right, where a lot of fintechs have got on their multipliers, you know, especially like what Sam said, and that downward pressure is globally. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the fintech market and what fintechs, one, are able to innovate, really innovate, and they get to profitability and, and survive throughout this period. And the next thing, because there's a lot that probably won't, and there'll be a very interesting bit to see around what the new innovation comes because we are at a nexus of, you know, uh, uh, blockchain and, and I'll say the fringe of the was it, regulatory environments coming into mainstream. And I think that the nexus of these two worlds is going to lead to some very interesting fintech plays. And, and we're really keen to see uh, what that looks like uh, in, the coming, in the coming two to three years. This is great. Uh, some real good insights today for how to run businesses better, looking at what's happening in three very, very different regions. Chipo, Sam, Salim, thank you very much for joining us. And Boonping, Wilson, over to you. Thank you to all our speakers and moderator. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Wilson Chia, Advisor, Excellence in Retail Finance Awards Program, and Mr. Fu Boonping, President and Managing Editor at the Asian Banker, who will be leading the Heads of Retail Finance Annual Meeting. What a wonderful uh, discussion. We had two panel discussions earlier with Mobasha and uh, David and Dick. They were talking about the use of uh, AI in data analytics and, and how appropriate the use of uh, uh, AI uh, in Asia as well, where we have a diversity of language and the use of natural language uh, processing is, is useful in terms of um, looking at data in different languages, as well as how data is helping to minimize and mitigate fraud risk, especially in this um, era when there is increasing access to digital services and that create kind of open up vulnerabilities uh, in system as well. And uh, the just concluded session on payments and again, wonderful insights from Sam, uh, Salim and uh, Chipo and coming from different perspective as well on uh, for the new players, how the environment has changed from uh, quantitative easing to a tightening environment, the need to monetize their services versus traditional players. They are also innovating and using APIs Absolutely. and creating Absolutely. new revenue models uh, through distribution, through transaction services. Including so, cultural change as well. Yeah, including cultural change. So wonderful insights from those uh, discussions. And um, I, I trust that, that, that this will be valuable insights for our colleagues who have just joined us. And next, we'll start our International Heads of Retail uh, Finance Dialogue. And I'm pleased to hold this session with my esteemed uh, advisory council member and, vet and veteran digital and retail banker, Wilson Cha. And uh, we're also excited to have leaders in digital retail and consumer finance from across Asia, Middle East and Africa to discuss and debate the future of retail uh, finance uh, as we look at supercharging retail and starting the next phase of digital finance uh, transformation. So as we as uh, as we make the transition to the next phase of digital finance tra uh, transformation, two observations we have been in this challenging years of COVID nineteen uh, that have uh, unprecedented impact on health and the economy. And despite early hiccups, most retail banks we have witnessed uh, have actually quite market growth in their retail business, uh, including SME lending 
as retail consumption and finance, especially through uh, digital and mobile commerce platform, continue to be strong and resilient, making up for the drop in corporate and institutional uh, revenue and markets volume, so on and so forth. So in addition, with the low interest rate environment in the last two years of 2020 and 2021, of course, 2022 is kind of different because of the high inflation, given the tight supply chain, as well as the uh, geopolitical situation. Uh, interest margins and MPL have come under a lot of pressure. Uh, however, fee income through transactions and wealth uh, management activities have more than offset the gaps in bank revenues and profits. And with a shift to digital transactions and processing, we have also seen improvements in operating costs and service delivery as reflected in our latest bank quality rankings. I'm sure you are seeing these trends in your individual bank and marketplace. And amid the economic challenges and competitions, traditional incumbents are able to navigate and make critical progressions. In the dialogue to follow, we will explore how the traditional progressive, traditional progressive and new players navigate the changing landscape with the appropriate business model and strategies to effectively and efficiently deliver the desired customer experience, leveraging on their digital capabilities. Lastly, to recognize and track the increasing array of standalone virtual or challenger banks, I'm pleased to announce that the Asia Banker have launched the world's first comprehensive assessment of global digital-only banks to rank them based on a balanced scorecard, utilizing an objective and transparent set of evaluation criteria. So more details about the global uh, top 100 digital-only banks ranking will be made available, available later. Uh, Richard, who just uh, uh, led us through that panel discussion, will be uh, going through a briefing right. on key findings of the excellence program, as well as this new uh, research on uh, the global digital banks. And the details can also be found on TAP Insights. Uh, we have rebranded Asian Banker Research. We now call it uh, TAP Insights uh, to allow our users uh, easier access to our, res our research resources. Um, uh, uh, it's a rich repository of uh, research data uh, of uh, digital retail uh, banking uh, uh, working group uh, that has got uh, you know, uh, case studies, benchmark, and uh, we do a lot of benchmarking and uh, business review for digital retail banks, including the global uh, digital banking services. So we'll be sharing some, some of those insights from, uh, from those rankings as part of this dialogue. Uh, banks and FI have also been accelerating their digital transformation. The rise of digital challenges facilitated by regulatory changes, issuing of uh, banking, digital banking license, for example, as well as consumer behavior shift have pushed traditional players to respond, not just in modernizing your technology architecture infrastructure, Absolutely. but in how you do business. So we heard earlier, uh, we heard earlier from Chipo, for example, NetBank, how they are creating new revenue model using APIs, especially how you partner and collaborate with each other through digital and cloud-enabled platforms uh, to facilitate open banking or embedded finance. Uh, a big part of the modernization is still through investment in technologies, uh, such as we heard earlier through artificial intelligence, machine learning, Internet of Things, blockchain, 
uh, it is becoming more evident in the industry that the retail financial services are driving heavier active digital usage and more revenues. So given the, the rising uh, customer, the changing customer behavior and rising expectations, the need for rapid and ongoing innovation impacts every component of banking, from new product development to new ways to deliver services to back office process rethinking that changes the entire banking models. Hence, the demand on banks and FI today will be for them to focus and prioritize because resources are limited. And the trend towards the faster payments and less cash uh, will continue. As such, as new real-time payment and open banking platforms shift consumer behavior and elevate expectations, their inevitable move towards cloud and edge computing has also enabled institutions to have greater agility to innovate, achieve scalability, and deploy secure, efficient operations. With open APIs, big data and analytics coupled with the use of machine learning, FIs are leveraging opportunities to collaborate with fintechs and third-party providers to better meet customer needs at lower cost. As well as introduce new products and services such as embedded finance, which should be in a hot top topic, while delivering seamless customer experience. In essence, when we talk about customer experience, it is all about innovation and partnerships. Incumbents have now started issuing digital tokens and wallets as well. While regulators, as discussed previously in the last uh, two topics, are exploring or implementing central bank digital currencies, for short, the CBDCs, into their systems. These innovations and development prove that retail finance will play an even bigger role going forward. So amid these trends and developments, we wish to hear from our heads of retail and heads of digital and consumer finance uh, about their thoughts on how they address their banks are addressing the challenges and opportunities moving forward into the future. What are the important issues for each of the institution and marketplace? How are they, again, focusing and prioritizing and investing? At the same time, how is their, their organization embracing a new operating model with a new culture and applying new technology stack to move forward and compete successfully and win? And with that, we are Happy to start with a few comments from Emmanuel Daniel, my good friend, the founder and chairman of Asia Banker. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's uh, four. It's uh, four thirty in the morning uh, here in uh, New York, um, and I'm I'm sufficiently jet lagged in, is so that I'm awake uh, and uh, very happy to join all of us uh, in this year's Excellence in Retail Financial Services Program. Um, as uh, some of you may be aware, um, you know, the Asian banker today uh, is sufficiently mature uh, so that I um, can take on a uh, independent personality uh, apart from uh, the company, the organization. Um, and as uh, Bunping has pointed out, 
Um, we are now part of a global company or rather a global configuration called Tab Global. Uh, and Asian Banker is one of the brand names. Uh, and the other brand name is Tab Insights, uh, the research division or research arm uh, of what used to be the Asian Banker. And the reason we made this, um, this uh, uh, transition uh, is to mature the consulting uh, and research um, uh, aspects of the business. Uh, and actually, uh, my very good friend, Wilson Chia, uh, and other highly um, respected, highly experienced, hands-on uh, uh, financial services professionals uh, are now available to us uh, as consultants uh, to work with us on our methodology um, in helping uh, retail banks and digital banks uh, manage the transition or, or, or you know, um, in, in, uh, to to, um, to uh, guide the transition uh, and, and to um, work out the matrix that you need to put in place uh, and, and also uh, the direction that you need to take um, and the challenges that you face based on the challenges that you face in your respective organizations. So I hope that we will have um, a separate conversation with some of you uh, on uh, your digital journey. Um, the uh, the, the value of me sitting away from the organization and, and traveling to places like the U.S. I, I was in Europe last, uh, last week uh, and I met with regulators in Luxembourg uh, and uh, people in Germany. Um, and um, what I'm learning uh, is this relationship between uh, innovators, disruptors and regulators. Um, and by the way, uh, the book that I talked to you all about last year it's actually coming out. I'm sorry for the delay, but um, there was there has been intensive work uh, put in to capture uh, a lot of the innovations taking place, especially in the area of cryptocurrencies, uh, digital uh, and and disruptive finance. Um, uh, and I I highly commend to you what I've written uh, because it's it's so forward looking uh, and it um, and it tests. Uh, some of the assumptions that we make uh, in finance today. Um, now, let me just share with you very quickly. I know I don't have too much time. If, if I did, uh, there's, I have a lot to say. Um, I take a look at uh, the developments uh, taking place in uh, digital banks, digital-only banks in Hong Kong, in Singapore, and now in Malaysia, and soon in uh, Indonesia, and so on, and then the developments in China and India, and so on. Uh, and also developments taking place here in the U.S. Um, you know, banks like the the traditional banks like uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Wells Fargo have committed uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to digital transformation. So now they are awake. The American giants are awake. They are fighting back, uh, and they're going to be change. They're going to be developing innovations that the rest of us will be looking at. And and I will be meeting uh, the chairmen of at least two banks here. Uh, and so on. Um, what I want to say is that, uh, and I, or the thoughts that I want to leave you with is that any digital uh, initiative that is based on preserving the current uh, ecosystem will fail, is failing. So uh, for example, uh, what the, the data that we put together um, uh, on digital banks, uh, digital only banks around the world, uh, only five digital-only banks are profitable. Um, 
all, all the rest are not profitable, have not been profitable from the first day. And their proposition uh, appears to be nothing to do with finance, uh, but based on what is called the platform technology, uh, platform uh, technology, right? Uh, and in platform technology, uh, the venture capitalists, uh, the, the investors are looking for the same formula uh, that gave rise to the Amazons, the Googles and, um, and the Facebooks of the world, where they onboard millions of customers uh, and then uh, create the, uh, the, the, the income stream uh, later on, right? Now, the thing about financial services is that that income stream never comes, okay? So... Uh, I can tell you uh, with all confidence that uh, the digital-only initiatives in, in Hong Kong right now, none of them are profitable, very clearly. Uh, in Singapore, they will not be profitable. And in Malaysia, they will not be profitable. Uh, in fact, they will be capital-intensive uh, and they will, um, you know, uh, will, will, will have to, you know, they'll be burning capital uh, over a period of time. And regulators even assess them on their ability uh, to withstand uh, or take uh, the blows of capital requirements um, that will be built on them over time. Um, what needs to happen is that if you are really into digital finance uh, and um, the impact of the, um, of the network economy uh, on finance, uh, your idea of products in finance has to change, have to change, okay? In other words, you have to um, eventually be selling something other than mortgages, something other than deposits and so on. And actually I, 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 I deal with this in my book, okay? Um, so we need to start imagining uh, what is the value? I mean, I, I don't like this word, but value proposition or the, the, the value that you give uh, to your customers uh, and the relationships that you have. Um, and, that is, and that will be captured in how products uh, are configured going forward. Okay, so let me leave you with that thought. Uh, I have so much more to share with you. In fact, um, as soon as the date of my book is uh, announced, I will be putting out videos uh, to explain some of these uh, points um, and, uh, and to uh, challenge uh, the, uh, the assumptions that many of the uh, new players, new platform players are coming on stream and getting their license. In fact, uh, the licenses that are being given out by the different regulators uh, may well be um, a, a curse uh, rather than a gift. Uh, if they don't know what they're doing, okay? Um, and the second thing I just want to say very quickly is this, that something I've seen uh, in um, traveling and meeting different people is that in every society, uh, the role of the regulator to preserve the integrity of the financial system is very important, right? It's a given. It's, it's something that you don't question. But the role of the entrepreneur to challenge uh, the regulator's assumptions to uh, to propose new ideas uh, to push um, into areas where permission is not required uh, and to create new realities is just as important. And that tension between regulation and innovation uh, must always be there. And if you have the tension, you're on the right track. If you don't have the tension, then all you're doing is creating what you already know. Okay, now um, let me not, um, uh, we want to hear from each of you.
uh, let me not um, um, you know, ho- hold up the, the dialogue as it goes on. Uh, and I'm very happy that uh, Bunping and Wilson are uh, moderating this session, but I'm here, so I'm going to be listen- listening very carefully uh, to all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Edie, and uh, thank you for uh, the insights and, and the comments, and we're looking for the insight for the book as well. And the reminder that you know, as the banks, uh, traditional banks are going through the digital transformation, is to create new value, create new innovation, not to preserve the status quo. So that is a good uh, uh, topic to start this discussion with. Uh, as the banks that you are leading are going through your digital transformation, as you are facing the challenges, uh, opportunities before you, what are you doing to create new value by leveraging technology, new business model, operating model to create new value, new possibilities? Uh, let's start by asking yes. a innovative bank in the region that uh, right now is, is in the business of uh, starting a digital asset uh, exchange, Qubit, right? So, and that is Classicon Bank. Uh, and they've also worked with a social media platform, Line, and uh, uh, started uh, Line BK in Thailand. So I- I'd like uh, Dr. Pipapahan to uh, give us a-, a few comments on your thoughts on uh, innovation as you, you know, uh, go through your digital transformation. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Um, I, I, I represent KBank and, and um, as you know, that we started off with uh, traditional commercial banks, uh, retail banks, and um, we, go, we become uh, digital and we work with um, partners and those kind of ecosystems um, through digital technologies. Uh, we have um, mobile banking called KPlus. Uh, we are number one mobile uh, application in Thailand uh, with over 18 million users. We also partner with Facebook, um, uh, Line, and those kind of um, other platforms. So we want to be what you call a digital uh, payment platform uh, going forward um, in, in many various um, customer experience and moment of truth um, that uh, customers would use um, on digital payment. Once we open up all the digital lending, um, we have quite tons of customers coming in and apply digitally every month. Um, we also um, work with um, partners like hospitals, uh, universities, um, many, many, many platforms that uh, you can imagine of, uh, including all the tourists, so uh, those are our main strategy moving forward. So you can see that um, the digital bank only may not be the success factor. Uh, we believe in the what you call strong channel presence and moment of truth that we can capture. And also that we will integrate with other channels uh, besides digital or the human assisted. Uh, call centers, branch, and, and other platforms, uh, touch points, uh, we will go forward on those kind of experience and try to integrate them. As you know that um, since we own 18 million users on board, we will use these capabilities 
that um, we can identify customers and help others to onboard uh, their platform as well. So um, even pay with K plus or onboard with K plus for K, what we call KID, you can identify yourself through K plus. Um, these are the things that we put all the jigsaws together and try to work it harmoniously uh, through these digital technologies. So I think um, I uh, leave it to you first uh, to hear from others and, and then we'll wrap it up later. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Pipatong. Uh, I think you have captured some key points which I share. I certainly agree with you that uh, new trends, uh, you mentioned things like uh, health and finance uh, indirectly, right, uh, based on what you do. Uh, at the same time, you have also captured things about, you know, uh, delivering uh, uh, customer experience to uh, innovation and partnership, because these two is very critical in how you deepen the relationship. Um, right. At the same time, in with line with Facebook and uh, exactly. Facebook Pay and everything, yeah, yeah we, we go for it. If you want to deliver the kind of customer experience, you just have to innovate and have partnerships. Uh, they must go hand in hand. And so, now we would like to take the opportunity also to ask for the views from uh, uh, Jeffrey Ng of uh, RHB Bank in Malaysia, uh, who is the managing group director of community banking. Uh, Jeffrey, your comments. Hi, thank you, Wilson. Uh, firstly, uh, greetings from Malaysia. Uh, good evening to, to everyone here. So uh, we, we recently have won a, a, a digital li a banking license together with um, uh, Asiata. Uh, we feel that, uh, you know, we, we can definitely um, leverage and have some synergy uh, among us. Um, quite obviously, the digital bank will, will take a very... Um, uh, uh, a focus on, on the underserved segment uh, for a start. So we, we feel that there can be a, a good leverage whereby um, working together with the conventional bank, we can complete the whole supply chain, especially for um, you know, uh, SMEs, right? Uh, but I just wanted to comment on the fact that um, you know, RHB, we have been investing in uh, digital transformation over the last four to five years. Obviously, we are always looking for um, uh, new technologies and, and partners to, to basically complete our um, straight-through offering, uh, quite obviously for efficiency and also uh, lowering the, the cost to serve, like, like uh, most institutions. Uh, what we feel really excited about is basically the development in uh, APIs and ecosystem partnerships, uh, like, like what uh, our esteemed uh, and earlier speaker uh, touched on. And we feel that that truly is going to be the way to go. Uh, open banking and, and the ability to, to link up with, with various uh, parties. Because I think banks today, we actually have to complete the end-to-end -end, uh, solution for a customer rather than just merely focusing on what the institution is, is uh, you know, um, have the uh, capabilities at the moment. We must be completing the whole solution for the customer in terms of needs. And I, 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 I like your comments on because... Uh, when Edie earlier mentioned in his uh, remarks about products, I think in today's world, we talk about solutions and product fulfills solutions. So solution is the way to approach it. And I totally agree with you, uh, especially when you're dealing with uh, uh, SMEs and underserved segments. Uh, you know, today, consumers do not, especially in the business side, uh, do not just expect products because they want you to look at their business health and the journey in the financial management. So solutions is the way and uh, leveraging on um, 
technology, uh, you know, and APIs uh, to support them. So, which is uh, a way to go in, in today's uh, banking. Um, I would ask you a question uh, before we ask for comments from the other participants. Uh, you, what's your use of cloud computing and edge computing, especially when you know, you're talking about the transformation journey? So um, for, for us, uh, we are obviously moving uh, towards um, um, a, a cloud tech stack like, like most uh, institutions. Um, you know, I, I think going, going forward, uh, cloud computing is obviously going to be really key to, to ensure that we have actually scalability and the ability and the agility as well to, to actually uh, come up with solutions to meet the various uh, situations that keep on changing quite dynamically. So um, um, I, I would think that it is really important for institutions to, to move towards there going forward for the future. Thank you, Jeffrey, for those comments. And uh, this uh, exciting time ahead in Malaysia as you have new competitors coming in and incumbents are also responding with your own uh, transformation um, initiative. Next, I'd like to um, get the view of um, uh, Hatton National Bank in Sri Lanka, uh, Sanjay Rijamani. And uh, Sanjay, if you can get your comments on uh, dealing with uh, some of the digital challenges. So thank you. I think the, the digital uh, transformation really took place with uh, COVID with sort of the essential uh, changes that a bank needed to make uh, in terms of supporting all our customers, making sure that business kind of uh, took place during very challenging times. And HNB being a leader in merchant acquiring, we have a, almost a 40% uh, market share uh, in the country in merchant acquiring. So we had to look at so many different ways in terms of being able to support the whole payment system in Sri Lanka. So that was one of the first things we did looking beyond uh, the traditional post to mobile post, uh, QR payments, the payment gateway, uh, soft post, so all these sort of different assets that we uh, sort of enabled our customers to, you know, really support them through very tough times in terms of, uh, you know, being able to run their businesses. So that was the first thing we kind of did uh, last year. And then uh, again, through our uh, mobile banking platform, uh, really enabling our retail uh, consumers to uh, freely transact, do their banking, uh, open their accounts, place their investments, and then also make uh, again payments. And we also enabled a payment platform that allowed uh, customer was to transfer money to anybody in Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, the person, the third party, simply goes to an ATM. Uh, you know, there's a cardless transaction and and withdraws. Then we also uh, during this time came up with a, a mobile wallet. Uh, which enabled once again the unbanked community to uh, come into the system and uh, using any sort of uh, instrument uh, that they already have, uh, being able to then uh, transact and make payments. So this was uh, really uh, the digital transformation that uh, you know we sort of uh, took uh, during the time of COVID, and then of course moved on to you know support it with uh, chatbot, with the RPA. So lots of different uh, things happening here and it's really a, a very uh, uh, interesting time because sri lanka uh, mm. you know is the country going through lots of uh, challenges and some of the digital innovations that we had uh, post covid now coming into again a situation where the country is going through a tough time has still enabled us to as a banking system uh, to really support our customers and allow them to 
uh, carry on their businesses during uh, these days. So moving on to the second part of the question, I think the country is going through one of the worst periods that we have had. Uh, I think it's clearly evident that, you know, we, we need to go into a, a well set out a development plan with the IMF. Uh, we've initiated uh, talks a little late probably uh, than what we would have liked as a country. Uh, but now we are seeing, uh, you know, some sort of uh, positivity coming uh, through the plans that, uh, you know, the, we are talking through the IMF. And we also have uh, some neighboring and supporting uh, other countries uh, coming forward to support us. But uh, again, as a banking industry, I think we've come a long way to, you know, uh, with the learning through COVID to now support our customers during these, uh, you know, challenging times. So I would think that uh, the banks are ready uh, to face these uh, tough times. Thank you. I, I've, uh, you know, uh, we talk about digital transformation. Now, we all know that digital transformation is not just about the use of new technology, you know, and one of the biggest transformation barriers could be cultural shift within the organization. You know, perhaps there could be silo mentality. Uh, through my experience with dealing with organization, one of the biggest challenge about transformation, be it a digital transformation or or uh, repositioning of the bank has always been the cultural shift and silo mindset. So how, how do you address, do you, if you have challenges like this, how do you propose, uh, how you like to share with us, uh, how you've been, your organization been addressing these challenges, or at least put across to move to a new culture? Yeah, certainly. So I think uh, HNB being a bank uh, that has been around for 130 years uh, in Sri Lanka, was one of the old uh, traditional banks with, uh, you know, probably a culture that needed a lot of uh, uh, change management and, and rethinking in terms of uh, really supporting uh, the digital transformation. So having a sort of 5,000 plus uh, community or staff members, uh, this was a challenge. But as we uh, thought through our plans in terms of innovation and in terms of uh, changing uh, our behavior towards, uh, you know, customers and really aligning them to uh, digital interaction, our first uh, challenge, as you mentioned, was our staff. So we spent actually a lot of time in terms of upskilling them, uh, upgrading them, uh, taking them through the experience of the various, various digi uh, digital assets. So we didn't straight away go out to the market, but we did was we spent a lot of time in terms of having sort of small scale innovation labs in all our regions, uh, taking these assets to them so that they be, uh, you know, sort of first hand users. Uh, you know, see the experience and in fact gave us very positive comments, negative comments, so that we could also work on it before we went to the market. So we actually had brand ambassadors of all our digital uh, uh, assets uh, way before we sort of went to the market. So we kind of took a staff first approach. We made sure that our, our staff are really uh, conversant uh, and, and really ambassadors of these products and, and really uh, sort of uh, appreciated the, the changes in the banking scenario before we went out. And I think the important thing was uh, their feedback also allowed us to, you know, fine-tune some of these products. And that really helped us uh, when we finally went out to the market. So I think it was a challenge, but something that we overcame with uh, proper planning and change management. Uh, we also like to get uh, uh, some insights uh, from, um, from the Middle East and uh, North Africa from National Bank of Egypt, uh, Mr. Karim Sous. Uh, how are you? Uh, looking at the digital transformation and creating new uh, business opportunities over there. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, in Egypt here, the, 
the central bank is uh, working on the uh, initiatives for financial inclusion and digital banking, along with the uh, government uh, and ministries, because we are a very uh, much cash society. So we work hand in hand with the government through the uh, ministries to enforce the digital payments uh, and uh, add costs for cash payments in certain ministries. Because at the end of the day, with the, with the uh, unparalleled market also within the merchants and in uh, uh, factories, they are not willing to accept any uh, digital payment uh, because of the fear of taxes. So we have the infrastructure ready. We have like 800,000 POS machines, QR codes, uh, everything is ready. But still the challenge is, as you said before, is uh, the uh, cultural change and enforcement of the digital payments. But we've, I mean, the COVID period help, uh, helped us a lot in uh, engaging the uh, banking customers to start using the digital payments. We grew like 300% on digital payments during the COVID period. Great, thank you. Uh, so financial inclusion is a great uh, driver for digital uh, transformation and also delivering the last mile uh, service to this underserved segment and also to do it sustainably. And, you know, and banks are leveraging technology to do that. Uh, but at the same time, being able to uh, make uh, a profit out of it and still not at the expense of uh, this underserved uh, consumer. Uh, next, we want to hear from uh, uh, Bank Islam Brunei Darussalam, BIBD, and we'd like to hear from uh, Mr. Kavi uh, Salbi Arubin Bin Jamel. Yeah, I think a lot of the experiences uh, that we had is similar to a lot of the uh, the banks uh, that I've mentioned uh, just now. So one of the areas that I think is quite different than uh, what has been mentioned was uh, the, the uh, as an initiative to actually cater uh, customers to avoid uh, customers flocking to the to the physical branches. We have introduced with collaboration with a third-party merchants uh, where uh, customers can actually book uh, to actually go to our branches. So this, this sort of uh, avoids people flocking into the branch. Uh, we encourage them to book early so that they can actually manage uh, which slot of, uh, and time of day that they actually can actually uh, visit the branch if they require to. But in general, we don't encourage, especially uh, during this time of COVID, to actually encourage people going to the branch, but if they need to, uh, this is the means that we are offering to customers. Um, and this platform as well also actually uh, is a platform that is uh, uh, currently being used by the government um, ministries. So it's actually quite well known and it's easy uh, for, for customers to adapt and use it. So that's one area. The other area that we sort of uh, try to uh, cater towards the uh, ease and convenience uh, of the customers is actually to onboard um, merchants with high uh, merchant platforms within their own uh, platform. So during this COVID, for instance, a restriction uh, for dining in uh, was uh, made quite difficult. Uh, so a lot of customers are, are only required, uh, restaurants, for instance, are only required to actually uh, 
takeaway uh, when it comes to food. So we onboarded several merchants who actually in their platform has got a lot of uh, businesses within uh, their platform so that it would be easier and gives it gives more option for customers to actually uh, get their orders quite easily. And, and, and this is beneficial for us because during this time of uh, COVID, uh, it's quite difficult to... Uh, to approach individual uh, businesses. So by doing so, it's more uh, quicker and faster. And the convenience of this as well is, you know, uh, we encourage, obviously, the uh, method of payment would be digital. So online and also we have our proprietary, uh, proprietary um, QR code payment uh, system. So that's also uh, encouraging customers to go digital. So in these two areas, I think, um, it has been quite successful, especially during this uh, COVID period. Next topic, which is uh, probably an important topic that uh, affects all of us, and um, whether it's big or small, and because of the new technology, and the world has gone through a uh, volatile time. So uh, it has been said that financial health is the future of banking, right? And, uh, so how can we as bankers uh, help to improve the financial wealth or financial health of our customers? So with that, I'm going to turn to uh, Victor Lee of HSBC Taiwan on how digitization has been leveraged upon to deliver this financial health on real-time basis to our customers to make the right decisions and be guided with the right advice, leveraging on uh, machine learning or AI and robo-advisory uh, to support uh, their uh, journey in their financial management throughout the various life stage. So I'd like to hear comments from Victor. Yeah, I think um, what I come from wealth management background, right? So I have to say that uh, this digital transformation is not a nice to have thing. Basically, it's a necessity, right? Especially during this COVID period. So, you know, I can't even imagine that, you know, if this COVID situation came, you know, like three years earlier or five years earlier, then we'll see a huge disruption in terms of how we service our customer. Okay. So I think uh, that's, that's number one. Number two is that uh, with wealth management, actually, I don't think we are yet at a pure digital uh, level, I gotta say. So in Taiwan, there are three uh, digital banks. Right, and I must say that uh, from the scale or from the service provided to the customer, uh, it's not yet up to the standard. Rather, I think uh, for customers, especially at the high net worth or the way to auto high net worth uh, level, they still need this uh, warmth from the relationship manager. However, it needs to be you know partnered with uh, a very strong digital capacity at this stage. So that uh, there are a lot of things that uh, we can we can achieve with this digital uh, support to service our customer. That's very important, and uh, it also helped our ends to be more timely, you know, get uh, the alert on the customer's portfolio, and get the uh, opportunity to you know, reach to the customer firsthand before any other bank to update uh, the situation, to update you know, certain product performance in the customer's portfolio, to update any opportunity you know, uh, uh, the customer you know, can capture within his risk appetite. And also this delivery is not digital. 
So you know, you know, you know, in in the past two three years with COVID, you know, a lot of meetings has go online, and the customers, you know, after the customer get this trading idea from the RN, then customer just go digitally to trade it. And thirdly, is that I think even with this high net worth segment, uh, uh, they are starting to pass down the wealth to the younger generation, right? And the younger generation, they are all you know born digital, <laughs> so everybody is 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 you know using the the uh, digital device to to interact with the bank and with the market. So that's also a very very important way uh, that we we need to uh, be ready for. And I think lastly is that the challenge in digital is that it's ever changing. So after we launch our equity trading capacity in our mobile app, right, the new to this uh, platform, the number of new to uh, number of customer new to this platform increased fifty percent, and the overall trading volume, you know, flow into mobile from internet banking is around fifty percent. So that just tells us that how addictive we all are on our mobile. <laughs> Nobody, you know, after I go home, I never use my my laptop. However, I do use my mobile. So I think that's the way forward. And what's next, right? We're not sure. Will, will there be something to replace mobile in the coming three five years? We're not sure. So I think that's the constant challenge to us all. That you know we need to be very agile. To, to to catch up with the new technology, so I think that's also you know even with the uh, organization as big as HSBC, we're not only you know look into our in-house IT solutions, but rather we are also you know looking for the third-party vendors so that we can keep up to date with the market. Thank you, Victor. So with that, I'm going to ask comments from um, uh, Girish from ICICI on on the, uh, the wealth side as well. Good to see you all. Yes. Uh, so on the on the on the wealth management side, uh, uh, I think uh, on the digital terrain, few things which we have done and which we believe are very very important. Uh, I think the first and foremost is how comprehensive or how robust the entire platform is in terms of providing the wealth management services. So it's not just uh, profiling a customer. It's not just uh, uh, advising on the model portfolio and of course, uh, telling him which asset classes the person should get into in terms of what percentage into equity, into debt, into alternative as assets. But also, I think the quality of reports, the quality of robo advisory, the quality of uh, uh, detailing that we can do in terms of creating an end-to-end -end solution for the customer is very, very important. That's the first thing. The second thing I think uh, is the is the nudges and the hyper personalized offers which you can. Give to the customer basis AI and ML models in terms of how and where the person should get into and what uh, kind of plans or investments which the person should get into. I think that is very very important. It has to be n equal to one. It can't be uh, a machine gun approach. It has to be a very very sharp laser approach for every customer because every customer is very different. Uh, I think the third most critical thing is the overall experience of the customer when he has invested through the platform. How is the UI? How is the UX? Is it clutter-free? Are the reports uh, very clear? Uh, there should not be any recon issues and errors. So I think some of these stuff is very, very important. And over a period of time, um, I think what we have seen is a lot of people uh, coming on the platform and asking for a detailed end-to-end -end journey on retirement planning. Uh, 
end to end journey on uh, creating a will uh, i think these are some of the emerging trends uh, which we are seeing people wanting to collate all their investments in one place so we have created something called the i locker where you can pull all your investments with any other bank or any other broker into one place and you can see what is the kind of asset i look at how do you want to plan your journey ahead and of course coupled with the, the knowledge part where on the platform what is the kind of uh, uh, information and the material you are giving to the customers so that they can read and evolve so something that we have come up with something called an orange book which which deals with uh, uh, financial planning and and simple things on finance uh, 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 so that they read and and evolve and, uh, and and probably enlighten themselves on what's happening in the market and how they should go about so these are some some of the stuff that we are trying to do at icsi about true to what was uh, said earlier the, the end to end uh, distribution or provision of um, a solution for wealth management and also to be able to help customers look at the entire uh, holdings or footings of their relationship with not, not just the banks but all their uh, financial uh, uh, relationship that the ability to aggregate data is very important and um and customers are demanding that now right and and uh with regulation there is also uh uh, uh open finance uh, allowing banks to be able to share data and so on and so forth and, and yeah and to put it simply based on your comments from our last two uh participants both Gareesh and victor i think you said you know uh hyper personalization is required in wealth management and hyper-personalization, hyper which is on segment one, to me is equal to technology, which is machine learning perhaps, uh, or in a future metaverse, plus data, plus insight, plus action, which is prescriptive as well as predictive. That sums up a, somewhat, uh, a successful wealth management. And we would like to ask, uh dig hole uh bank of china to perhaps oh, okay. yep. share with us the developments in, in uh in hong the marketplace yep. uh hong kong yeah yes uh, i think hong kong i think as like emmanuel has you know mentioned about that uh the virtual we have a lot of virtual banks and then actually uh right now they are perhaps they are not profitable but uh, they do bring in very new excitement not only to the customer but also to you know to market player like us and 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 actually the apps are pretty good you know and as a traditional bank um we uh, we are more functional and we didn't have the agility that they have so i pretty admire you know their you know entrepreneurship and also their agility to, to build on their strengths but however in terms of competing with them uh i think uh we we still you know as a traditional bank and also a major bank in hong kong we, we still have a lot of strengths and what are our strengths? As a major bank, we have a very, very good foundation about corporate banking, which means I got a lot of open, you know, banking ecosystem partners. And actually we did. We did have some partners from the property developer that we, we have very good collaboration digitally. And second of all, another key strength of our, our Bank of China is Bank of China, China. So I think the Greater Bay Area definitely is a really gold mine that we, we, we every bank is, is really targeted to that. And in combined, basically, we are strongest network by far. So basically, we are trying to leverage our strength that, yes, some customer may still go to virtual bank, but still, 
they need to keep an account with us because we perhaps can give them something extra. But however, this is only half of the game because I think digitalization and also you know the impact of virtual bank is really real because the customer experience is good and customers like that. So what we have to do is really rigorously to react to that, that at, in 2019, we, we organized ourselves and we create two departments, which compose of uh, around like 50 people. It's looking about customer experience alone and also a agile project management. And these people basically is our change agent that we have a very collective agenda, how we can, you know, to transform ourselves because we have like 15,000 people like prior, you know, speakers saying, you know, culture change is very difficult, particularly in a you know, big company like us. So we start from these 50 people to really to have a collective agenda for one, two years. Uh, some of the things that I shared earlier in another panel is about like, uh, we, we have a mobile first, um, you know, strategies, being our number one, you know, imperatives and all sort of, you know, you know, investment into IT, AI, whatsoever will, will build on our digital platform. And also we transform ourselves from a very functional digital app into, you know, a, 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 a band as a platform kind of thing that we have a open API capabilities. We could have like multi-media, um, you know, capabilities that we can host live program, um, you know, with the customer, you know, twice a week. And also we connect with our customer from, you know, using the chat function, you know, also the thing that we're trying to put everything into our mobile apps. And I think this is the thing that, you know, we have a determination and also we really see virtual brand is a very good, you know, competition and that we embrace that competition. But uh, we, we like, like Emmanuel said, we, we cannot, you know, just, you know, focus on our, our, ourselves. We need to be open up. And, and I think in the past few years, I think the transformation has, you know, given us some traction. And I think that change agent right now is, you know, becoming a, a key stream, you know, in the organization that will drive us, you know, um, you know, towards better future. I think that's my final comment on that. We thank all our heads of retail and digital and wealth for your insights. And there, there are so many uh, different initiatives and different priorities that you're working on. And I think one of the common themes that we are hearing is uh, open, uh, open collaboration, the use of APIs, you know, uh, that there is uh, the bank's role in providing total solutions. And the bank doesn't have to do everything. Right. You know, there, there are uh, partners out there that you can partner with um, and how you can uh, create from that uh, innovative solutions. Uh, now, we also want to hear from our research team, and uh, today uh, we're happy that uh, our advisor, Richard Hathong, is uh, going to uh, do the briefing for all the key findings from the excellence program for us, uh, as well as um, the uh, findings from the global digital only bank uh, ranking. So we're very happy to have uh, just completed that. Uh, that research. So, you know, looking forward to hearing uh, Richard bring us some insight from that. Uh, Richard? Great. Thank you very much. Um, and if I can ask the, the slides to be up, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so we're going to look at the, the transition post-pandemic that was referred to in some of the uh, discussions just now in, in Sri Lanka and other countries. 
uh, and look at what's happening with innovation and performance. Next slide, please. And look at some of what, uh, what has come in from some of the research on the uh, rewards program as well. So if we look at what happened with the, uh, the submissions for awards, it gives us an insight into what are some of the key areas uh, that people are looking at. So if we look at you know, 2015 compared to 2018 compared to 2022, several things uh, stand out. One is that obviously digital mobile is a key part of what everyone is looking at. SME has moved way up in the rankings. It was in there before, uh, but it's now the top area that people are, are focusing on for the awards. And there's a lot of innovation happening in this space. Credit cards, surprisingly, are making a, a comeback and then becoming more important as well. Uh, but it's also credit cards in a different format. Some of the key trends are the disintermediation uh, in all fields of, of retail banking as more fintechs come in, the economics are changing. We heard about that in the payment session earlier. And people are looking at monetization of those digital solutions. Whereas it was just providing a digital solution in the past, now it is how do we turn that into money? And I think Girish provided some examples of ICICI with a personalization, turning that into monetization. Next slide, please. The top 10 retail banks in the region, and we'll be uh, going on to awards fairly soon, are listed here. What I think is important about this, along with recognizing the, the really good initiatives at the various banks, is if you're not in the top 10, how do you use this? It's nice to look at rankings. Well, if you're looking at who does really well on digital journey and digitization, um, ICICI Bank was number one. If you're looking at who does really well on sales, CTBC in, in Taiwan and Isan Bank in Taiwan do well. You know, risk is something this year we're especially looking at um, and CTBC does, does well on that also. So you can use this both to look at who did well, but also who can you learn from by looking at the, the top players. Next please. And, and leveraging their success, their insights by looking at them more deeply. Some of the things that we've seen in this year's program uh, for us, the second generation digital only banks have consolidated their position. So going from just a basic bank to, you know, for example, in China, we've got iBank, WeBank, MyBank, but not UBank yet, but fairly soon. Uh, and it integrates with you know, the WeChat Pay or, or other solutions in there to offer broader, broader solutions. And then moving on next, looking forward, not in this year's yet, but looking into metaverse of, of AI, ARVR. The pandemic has moved digital along much faster um, than we might have expected if we were looking at this in 2019. BNPL is moving along more slowly. I thought, wow, this is going to be a big game changer. It's moving much more slowly than we might have expected. There are some technologies that are coming in. Uh, blockchain is fairly prevalent in the China market, not so much in the others yet. There is cryptography coming in. Um, and so there's a, a, a new, new solutions being developed faster, cheaper, using things like, like blockchain. A wealth management, we've heard from you know, Taiwan and, and India, as well as others, uh, about the shift towards digital wealth, especially for the uh, next generation um, that is coming in, uh, and more important than the past. We still need to be managing risk, especially fraud risk but other risks as well. And financial education uh, in areas, India, for example, has some uh, a joint venture with ADB, uh, uh, focusing on women and uh, overcoming the 
um, unbanked gap and enabling more people to do more with their personal finances. Uh, Boon Ping talked about the bank quality consumer survey earlier. We look at that to see which are the most recommended bank retail banks in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, and we've selected one from most countries in the region here from you know, Korea with Kakao Bank, um, Indonesia with BCA uh, and others around the region. Some themes that came out of that is the hyper-personalization that we heard about from several of the banks. So it really is making the hyper-personalized recommendations for each individual. Cloud infrastructure gives uh, banks an opportunity to be more uh, agile in what they're doing. Integrating lifestyle services, we heard about that, for example, with the super app from South Africa earlier, others coming in, and that's in some of the other markets as well. Uh, you know, on the um, uh, Singapore with, with DBS and some others, and then additional products that are coming in as well um, that have led to these higher scores. Next, please. When we look at the digital only banks, um, Ping has mentioned the 100, we'll start with Asia Pacific and look at the top 10 within the region. So a number of them are coming out of China, WeBank, MyBank, Suning Bank, um, doing really, really well as digital only banks. Uh, on the left-hand side, you'll notice that these top 10 are profitable um, from the calculations that we've been able to do. So. Uh, there are a lot of others that we've heard are not profitable, but some of the ones that have been around longer. You know, Dr. Ten Bank has been around for quite a while. Kako Bank has taken massive market share in Korea over the past five years. Um, so there has been growth within that. Um, and then if you're looking to do something on digital banking, you know, who are the successful ones? Well, if you look in balance sheet, uh, WeBank, uh, and also in the financials, if you're looking at successful funding, Kako Bank has done some really th good things around that. So we can use this to look at what are the success factors, but also in particular areas that we want to focus on. Next, please. If we look at globally, uh, WeBank is number one globally, and they've done a, a lot of integration with uh, WeChat Pay, for example, um, and integration with, with some other services. Um, Ally Bank in the US um, is, is number two globally, uh, and they're focusing on Gen Z. Uh, and also the millennials as they uh, bring in new services. ING uh, in both Germany and Netherlands, they also do relatively well in Australia, for example, though not in the top 10, um, has been digital for, for quite a while. And, and they are profitable in both of those markets. So another good example uh, of what some of the banks are doing, but this looks at the global side. And again, we can use that to look at who takes care of the customer best, who does uh, better on the financials, uh, who does better on the balance sheet, uh, if we want to run a, a better bank ourselves and some excellent examples for any of the uh, new digital banks within the region to, to gain some insights from the leaders. Next, please. So if we look at some of the findings from those top 100, uh, the aggregated assets of the top 100 are over $2 trillion. So they're not just the you know, 0.1% or something like that. They're turning into big financial institutions. As we heard earlier, most of them are not profitable. Um, you know, 29, that's, that's a reasonable number, but that means 71 are not profitable. So it takes a while to turn that around if they're going to do it. They have been able to raise capital even over the past couple of years, which have been uh, quite challenging. What we've seen in terms of the transition the financial institutions go through is it shifts from a highly commoditized business where you're just doing payments or you're just doing 
um, you know, deposits or something like that, and then gradually shifting along. Uh, and that initial uh, success that some banks look at is really a tenuous victory because they need to move it to the next level. Um, and the, the financial institutions that are digital have had real challenges moving into more than one market. Uh, Indonesia is one of the hottest digital banking markets. Um, you've got you know, financial institutions with um, Gojek, Grab, and C, for example, that are changing the market. You've got Ovo in there uh, doing some things around um, wealth management uh, at a very, very micro scale. And then Line Bank, collaborating with Casacorn Bank, as we heard earlier, is the leading digital-only bank in Southeast Asia. SME is at the top of our list this year of something people are focusing on. And we saw several trends within that. Uh, the financial institutions are looking more at the sustainability of SMEs. So how can they help them uh, succeed in difficult times? And it's uh, letting them know about lending opportunities or managing cash better, offering new services. There's digitization of workflow processes behind the scenes to make the processing faster and better uh, for the SMEs. Marketplaces are progressing well. Um, uh, ICICI in India launched a new marketplace for SMEs this year, for example. Some of the banks in Southeast Asia, you know, RHB, uh, for example, or uh, UOB have had marketplaces for a while. And then the onboarding processes become easier and faster. So it's no longer the two to three days. It's mattered in hour, measured in hours or minutes. Again, if we're looking at this, it's nice to see who's number one through 10. What we're also looking at is who's put the best models together. So if we're looking at risk, we're looking at potentially ESUN. If we're looking at process and automation, it may be OCBC Bank in Singapore. And each of us can learn from that for our SME business. Next, please. Some of the uh, financial institutions that we like, both on the SME side and the retail side, uh, Ping On Bank has streamlined its application process uh, for SMEs in particular, leveraged big data and AI, and the digital active ratio is uh, the highest uh, among its peers. On the uh, retail side, um, you know, ICIC Bank uh, MobilePay uh, links multiple accounts together, and that hyper-personalized experience uh, that we heard about earlier as well uh, enables customers to get what they actually need and learn what they actually need to enhance their financial life. Next, please. Then finally, some of the challenges that we look at, challenges as well as opportunity. There is sustained growth of alternative lenders. So if we go to Indonesia, for example, um, some of the fastest growth is within the, the fintechs that are, are lending. You know, BNPL has, has come up with some, uh, some new models um, in Australia, in Southeast Asia and other markets. So there is new competition, um, but there's also opportunity when banks are either able to do partnerships. We've heard about a partnership, for example, Casacorn and Line today, um, and, and some different things that, that uh, financial institutions can do, but there is greater competition than before. The uh, maturing of artificial intelligence and blockchain uh, is enabling more personalized, efficient services. Digital currencies, we talked about in the payments section with CBDCs. Um, and between um, the, the digital banks that are uh, bringing in deposits um, that, uh, that take away some of the cheaper deposits that the FIs have and some of the changes that will come with CBDCs, 
It's something we need to be aware of and prepare for. And finally, uh, ESG considerations should be are coming in. This week, for example, uh, Citibank in the US launched green products for its consumers, uh, and they can invest in, of course, city managed bonds uh, that are providing financing. Uh, others have done similar sorts of things. So it's relatively new, but consumers are pressing for um, a green solutions, eco-friendly ESG solutions. Regulators are putting on the pressure as well. And there are opportunities for leaders to take advantage of ESG or for the laggards to fall behind because of it. So tremendous opportunities looking at digitization, mobile, personalization, and some of the key trends going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.